mean, this was a topic that uh, also actually I'll talk to you about that behind the scenes. But um, yeah, I was gonna say um, one of the things that Q and I always talk about, and he makes fun of me for this, but I end up watching a lot of reactionary YouTubers. And, and, um, oh, so Raquel is on a Android. Oh, so that ended up being the problem. Uh, actually, I think I can help with that. Oh, 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 wait, wait. Yep. What I'm going to do, Raquel, I'm going to create a separate, um, Google Meets room. And I think what I can do is patch you through on my audio signal. This may work. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, that would be great if that could, that could work. Uh, yeah, but in the meantime, like one of the things that uh, QH makes fun of me for is I listen to a lot of reactionary YouTubers a lot, and I always tell them, like, look, the there's like racism and sexism and all this stuff happening on those sites sometimes, but you, a lot of times outside of like you know a handful of leftist podcasts and leftist um. YouTubers, a lot of times they're the only ones actually giving any analysis of anything, you know, because everything that you look at when you look at like, um, and to use some examples from comic books, because I used to like reading comic book websites, but like Newsarama, comic book resources, all those sites like that, they're just total like press releases now, or like uh, shill sites and everything. And I started realizing it kind of applies to everything like regular news is getting really bloggy or kind of tumblr-ish or like buzzfeedy like there's just like listicles i would say the old scourge of the internet was the snark era where everything was kind of trying to be like gawker but now i feel like everything is trying to be um buzzfeed or uh tumblr like two sites that are both like earnest and bad bad ways and you know anyone can feel free to jump in at any time this is not like a you know long monologue but yeah so that kind of brought me to to where we are now and you know uh what you guys think about that uh, i'm glad that you mentioned press releases um because i i mean i i did a presentation um for this recently uh, uh t- talking about kind of why uh wh- why i started um my online magazine Blood Knife and kind of what my thinking was. And one of the points I made was that like, probably, I don't know, 90% of the stuff that winds up on, you know, the, 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 the big blogs, you know, your, your Gawkers, your Buzzfeeds, your Kotakus and Gizmodos, all that stuff um, is, is all just very lightly rewritten press releases. And, you know, you can look at, you know, if you see an article that's on more than one blog in a given day, chances are you can just go and find the actual press release that they're rewriting and probably 70% of the content is, is the same. Actually, the point that um, all the Disney properties anyway, like Star Wars, Marvel, um, they, they all basically run their own little uh, BuzzFeed sites for press. And you could they, it, it literally feels no different than actually just going and reading you know, reading the rewritten press release uh, on on Gawker because they're not even really written like press releases anymore. They're just written like like blog posts. So yeah, it's it's been completely eaten up by it. 
Uh, so something else that I kind of noticed too, and this is like a whole different category, but this is like racial justice. To, just to show that this goes goes everywhere, like uh, even like uh, old black sites. But there was this story that um, came out about Brittany Pack Net or Pack Yeti. I forget how her name. I think it's Brittany Pack Net, uh, the quote unquote activist. She had the story where she was uh, promoting um, a liquor. And it was called like the new wealth and the new wealth is like social activism or something. It was some kind of thing that she was doing where she was using social justice and activism to shell to shill liquor. But I pulled up like two or three different sites. One was Essence. Uh, I forgot the other two sites that had the same story. And the people barely rewrote the paragraphs. Like, <laughs> I pull up multi- I pulled up multiple sites just to make sure I was getting the full story. And sometimes one site has information another site doesn't have. And when I did that, I saw something similar to what you were talking about, where I was like, wait a minute, did these people all just rewrite the press release? Because whole chunks of paragraphs were the same across the articles. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's there's not really anywhere else to get information from, like, you know, some pretty much every day it's something like, you know, six or seven in the morning, somebody posts one of the articles that's going to be on, on all the sites. And then, you know, if you, if you're, you know, making a hundred bucks writing a post, that's going to go on, on, you know, IO nine or something. Um, you're basically just looking at either the press release or another blog post. Um, and I'm not even sure where you would get, you know, like where would you even have time to get him to get, uh, other information from if you're expected to turn something around in like an hour and a half and get it posted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's kind of crazy. And I, I want to let people know who are watching on YouTube and Twitch and, um, rumble to, if you want to call in to this, go to the, um, call in app and look up the champagne sharks. Uh, call in show and you'll be able to uh, jump in because uh, otherwise you won't be able to interact and ask questions. But I want to check: Is Lewis able to speak now? Can can we hear him or or what? Can you guys hear me? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hear you pretty well. Oh, thank God! <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. Hi. <laughs> How are you guys? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I want to give you guys a chance to introduce yourself. So. Um, you know, since, since Kurt was already talking, I'll let Kurt introduce himself and where he's from. Oh, hey, uh, I'm I'm Kurt Schiller. Uh, I'm Mechanical Kurt on Twitter. Um, I am a writer uh, primarily about science fiction and fantasy and horror. I also write about general pop culture. Um, I'm the editor of the website Blood Knife uh, at bloodknife.com. So we cover, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, horror from a leftist, anti-capitalist uh, perspective. And uh, Lewis, if you don't mind introducing yourself. Hi, I'm uh, Lewis Parker, uh, LP Can't Lose on Twitter. Um, I'm feeling very much in my element today because my main area of expertise is uh, the dreaded listicle. I know people don't like hearing that word out loud. But uh, yeah, I've been doing this, uh, well, sadly, for about eight years. Um so yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident in my skills for the first time on a podcast. 
Wait, so when you say expert in listicle, like what what does that what does that mean? Like expert in discussing listicles or making listicles or both? Uh, you know, both. It's it's, it's a two way street. I I mean, I feel like there isn't actually that much expertise in writing listicles. Uh, to be honest, it is a pretty straightforward format. Uh, pick a number, pick a topic. You are fifty percent of the way there in completing <laughs> listicle. Um, talking about them is actually probably a little bit harder, to be honest, because uh, I feel like. Well, I'm sure we'll get into this later. But uh, I uh, I did a little bit of cursory research before we uh, we started, so I was curious. And um, the the idea, the format of the listicle, is a lot older than I thought. I didn't realize uh, it's one of those things you kind of think like happened with BuzzFeed or like old Vogue magazines. But like, uh, no, this has been around for a while. I'm pretty curious to get into the uh, the psychology and the history of it, to be honest. And uh, real quick, Andre, I'm sorry, Q. They're saying that the Rumble feed is not working. The Rumble feed is not working. Yeah, because we haven't we haven't gone live yet. Hello. Oh, okay. You haven't taken it live. I was waiting for you to do that. Oh, okay, okay. cool, cool. So let, let's let's do that. <laughs> it's okay. We can go live now. And um, by the way, are you able to are you able to hear um are you able to hear Raquel? Uh, not yet. I can't hear Raquel yet, but I don't know if she was talking. I was about to introduce Raquel. Can I hear Raquel? Um, okay. I know that you were able to, okay, I, Raquel, I know you're able to be heard in the stream. I just don't know if you're going to be able to be heard in the call-in room. I'm going to try, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, because I know they, they can definitely hear you in the, um, in the, in the Rumbles feed. I know that for a fact. I'm going to try one thing just really quickly. Um, it may make an ugly sound. It may not. Uh, <laughs> give me one second. All right. Okay, so, so we're trying to get Raquel onto the feed. Let's see. Uh, yeah, you know what? If I do try it, I know it's going to cause terrible feedback. All right, Raquel. Sorry. It may not work. I my absolute best. I'll, well, you know, next time. Next time. You know, come back. Right? Yeah, I've, I, no, I'm I'm a real big fan. Of, no, I'm a huge fan of your stuff, and I and I really wanted to have this conversation. Okay, all right, we'll take care. All right, sorry about that, Raquel. All good. Oh, sounds good. Yeah, have a good night. Bye now. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. I I tried my best over here. Tried my level best. Okay, I did. I did mention when I invited her that it's only on iOS, but. She must have missed it. Okay. It happens. Yeah, it's all good. Yes. Yeah, so um all the time I'm always sending Q like uh YouTubes from like uh you know, different reactionary people, but a lot of times it's the only place where you could like find uh anything that rocks the boat. You know, like yeah. uh gossip for example, like who's in and who's out behind the scenes, etc. Like everything is so sanitized on just about any type of industry. And I'm going to say something that's going to be kind of uh, controversial, I think. But, uh, you know, the whole thing with Gamergate, like Gamergate was wrong in overall as far as the racism, the sexism, the misogyny, and everything that 
they talked about, but the one thing that I think had a um, inkling of truth was the idea that uh, gaming media was kind of screwed up. You know, it didn't give an excuse for all the other stuff that happened after, you know, and, and all the things that uh, came along came along with it. But I also kind of think, and I've talked to Q about this, the fact that you're not able to talk about anything like that in any respectable mainstream legacy media places kind of makes the racist and the sexist and the reactionary people the only game in town to talk about this stuff. You know, like, uh, it was so verboten to say, uh, hey, maybe there is a lot of uh, shilling and cronyism in genre media. Like, you weren't allowed to say that anywhere. So I feel like for some people, it was became like, hey, if this is the only people who will let me complain about this and they're racist and sexist, then so be it, you know? Oh, totally. Yeah. I think that's a that's a pattern that repeats over and over again. Um, it's the same thing in, um, I, I don't know if anyone else here follows, uh, you know, like science fiction, like n- novels and short fiction, um, but there was a similar movement to Gamergate in uh, the Hugo Awards back around 2014 and 2015, um, where it was, it was very, very similar. It was basically people making, you know, very like right wing complaints about, you know, quote unquote, like forced diversity and, and, you know, all, all the usual bullshit uh, that people like that say. Um, But they, there was a grain of truth to some of what they were saying kind of about, about, you know, like the, the way that, uh, you know, people had started writing fiction for kind of like, like easy, easy applause and like easy triumphalism um, based around very lightweight treatment of identity issues, for for instance, or um, kind of about like the crony network that was kind of operating behind the scenes um, to boost, you know, certain writers over other writers. And it, it was the exact same thing where like they were the only people who were you know, saying some of that stuff. And, and so they very quickly became, you know, I, they, they, they probably a- attracted a lot more people than they otherwise would have because it was a thing that you weren't allowed to say. I, I feel like it's a, it's a really common pattern that happens over and over again. We have a actual call caller. I'm just going to, I'm to the caller right now. Yeah, go ahead. Hey Greg, feel say, free to. It's funny uh, how you say it. we have an actual caller, like we don't. Like, <laughs> we have an actual caller. Oh my god! Hey, no, hey guys. guys. No, usually, usually they take time to get before they get bold yeah. enough to call. So I feel good. Good. Oh, well, really, it's it's not on the subject, but I just was curious. You know, uh, Q, I, I was kind of wondering why you changed your name. If you it's something you would talk about, or if it's something you don't talk about, I didn't know. I, I knew it was Andre when you talked with uh, Glenn at, what, at the beginning. So I was just curious to kind of know what's going on, oh. if that's cool. Oh, that's fine. I mean, that had nothing to do with what we're talking about, but that's okay. I'll I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That's all good. It's all good. No, um, okay, so I mean, you didn't have to drop out. I was just giving you shit. I, I do that to people. Sorry. I, didn't, I, 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 wasn't, I hope you didn't think that I was actually mad or something. No, um, uh, so in doing my history master's, um, I kind of got sidetracked and accidentally but on purpose did a family genealogy and found out where in west africa my family came from and the more research i was doing on uh 
slave rebellions in the Caribbean, slave rebellions in the America, rebellions in the Americas generally, but also finding out like what my family's ancestral history was, it made it it made it really difficult for me to, I don't know, like, and this is I don't know, this is really hard for people to understand, I think, but like, um, I'm not one of those people that says I consider myself a very spiritual person, although I am spiritual, but it's not like in a sort of like a woo woo vague sense, but in the sense that like. Like, my older brother is an Aborisha. Like, I myself hold to, um, like, uh, I hold myself to West African traditions and so on. And doing all that, and at the same time, going by uh, an anglicized name, it just didn't really hold integrity for me. So I took a name that, um, I mean, it's not hard to figure out what it is, but I took a name that was, like, a West African name that was, like, um, in, like, uh native to the Akan people. So my ancestors were Akans before they were captured and sold uh, to slavers in Barbados and then to Jamaica. So um, I took a Akan first name. I kept my middle name because that's the name my mother really wanted me to have. So I kept the middle name. And when I got married, I took my wife's last name. So uh, that's where the Q, the Q is like the first initial of um, the traditional Akan name. Anthony is my, my middle name, and Omeni is my married name. What do you call that? When you get married and you have a name, you take your, your spouse's name. I think married. I think married name. Yeah, yeah works yeah, as exactly. well as anything. Yeah, no. So I know it was a, like a bit of a change for people, but I mean, we, I, I agreed with um, my now wife back when we were were engaged. I agreed with her maybe like a month or so afterwards because we were having a conversation about whether we were like who was going to change the name and so on. And she said, well, would you take my name? And I was like, uh, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> I don't have any problem with that. I don't think that the, I don't, I don't have any like issue with taking your name. I just wanted us all to have the same name. I didn't want you to have your name and me to have my name. And our kids would have like a hyphenated name. I think we should just have a family name. So she's like, well, in that case, would you take my name? And I was like, yeah. She's like, I'll hold you to it. Like, all right, I'll, I'll do that. Like, I'm not wedded to any notions as to who's supposed to take whose name. I just wanted our family to have the same name. Hope that answers your question. Yeah. I think that's cool. Yeah, yeah, so in general, I was just thinking, like, this kind of goes for everything. Like, it goes for politics. It goes for also people. I think some people are saying on YouTube they can't hear me, so I don't know what that's about. YouTube people can't hear you? Oh, they should be. Able to. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, well, well Vita says she can't hear that she can't hear me. Oh. But I don't know. But, um, um yeah. I... Okay. Uh, she should be able to now. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, uh, we have Andy if he wants to um, give us a. Uh, uh, hi, I'm Andy. Am I unmuted? Uh, no, you're can good. You I can hear you. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, cool. Hey, man. Um, I just figured if you guys were opening it up, I, I, well, I have one thing, um, T, like I really enjoyed, I think a long time ago, you were talking about looking at right-wing media for like the death rates of trans people versus black men. I think you did a live stream where you talked about that. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if the guy was right. Was it that or was it the Obama he, thing? He, I can't, sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, but that was actually one of the first times that that, that kind of like uh, 
crossed my mind like that there are some issues where like right-wing media is more i don't know if honest is the right word but like uh shit uh objective i don't know anyway but it's uh, critical it's critical yeah Yeah, that's a good that's a good word or I guess it even just like deals with any amount of like data or anything, you know what I mean? Like it feels like a lot of times, like whatever you call it, like general media, it's like, there's just no data. It's just kind of like thoughts you know, or whatever, or feelings or whatever. But um, I was actually thinking, I mean, I don't know. I know Gawker is back like now, but I used to work um, like at a college and grad school. I worked office jobs a lot. So I read a lot of Gawker, like, I guess between 2000 and, uh, God, I don't know, like five, 2005 to 2010 or something, you know? And um, I kind of feel like weirdly that era of Gawker, I mean, this this was definitely was anomalous. This didn't happen a lot, but they sometimes actually would do sort of a similar, like things would sneak through where there would be some kind of real reporting that other media wouldn't do. And the one thing that really jumped to mind is um, this is after 2008, I think, but um, they, they had this guy, Nick Bryant, that I think used to write for Rolling Stone, did a bunch of stuff about uh, Jeffrey Epstein's flight logs. And um, he did the best. Oh, they, oh, they would have a lot of great reporting at times. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, and I feel like, I don't know, if, I, I mean, I think, I don't know what it's like now, you know, but I feel like, um, that was kind of an interesting thing that it was like, because they were this gossip site, they were sort of willing to like buck some of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say, this, this might just be like shoehorning in, but when, when this, this topic came up, this is just something I think about like all the time. And I, I was just kind of curious to see what you think about it. Um, is like, uh, I wasn't, I was I was young, so I wasn't really there when this was happening. But like um, when Gary Webb was reporting the like Dark Alliance stories in the San Jose Mercury News, um, yeah. And then you know when, later on, like I read that book, and I mean that book just like blew my mind. I mean, completely blew my mind. And I I often think about how like it would just be there's there's no avenue for any kind of story like that like it's almost like that will never happen again like i could almost like a story like that being reported you know you know what i mean like like uh, yeah i know what you mean i feel like there has to be something but i got i feel like it must be harder to find i mean i know local news is getting gutted in general in so many places but yeah i mean that's a good question like does anybody on the panel to go in to be able to go that in depth yeah, a story of that kind of magnitude that would, you know, kind of really involve so many powerful players. Like, I just don't think that's, I think because of the shifts in media that you guys are talking about, like it just, and, and, and then, and then I guess the, the thing that I sort of wonder about that is like, how does that change? Like how we as like a population, like, are there just now going to be, things about what's really happening that we just will never know. You know, I, I don't know. It's kind of messes with my head a little bit. So, yeah, that's just something I wanted to throw out there. Here's, here's, one, here's one example I was thinking about when you were talking. Um, there was all this stuff happening, and someone shared this with me, all this stuff happening with Nestle and M&Ms, and is the green M&M a slut? <laughs> And all these like <laughs> weird mystical stuff about. <laughs> <laughs> you guys heard about hey. Oh, uh, she oh. isn't good for her. 
Oh, good for you. I got something to show you, bro. I got something to show you. Um, And we can't share pictures in the private chat, too. Um, But, okay. Do you all know this picture? It's a a very popular meme. It's a uh, blonde white girl, Piper Perry. And she's sitting on a white couch with a bunch of like. I know the one you made. Like, surrounding. Like. Yeah, okay. Well, somebody made up that picture, and it's like Tucker Carlson with all of the different colored M and M's on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But 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 yeah, like so everybody, all these sites, supposedly new sites, were like, you know, what do you think about the green M and M wearing? sneakers instead of shoes and then the right wing guys were like oh the left is against femininity and sjws are doing this and then there were all these articles about like you know who are the 10 um, best m&ms and uh, toxic masculinity (laughs) and it was was like every angle and then someone sent me a story said hey did you see this story and nestle is um facing this lawsuit over child slavery uh, I think Nestle might make M and M's or owns Mars. a Nestle owns a company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 Nestle, oh, Nestle, and Mars, and Mar- Mars is the one that owns M and M. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm okay. Mars has child slavery. This thing has been happening since June 2021, and I didn't hear anything about this. Um, but this green M and M thing has been like all over the place and i get it for like blogs and stuff like that but even in major newspapers i feel like they've been having all this lifestyle stuff over the stupid m&m character makeovers and like that's just another example i think about just how ridiculous like the coverage has gotten but the thing is even when mainstream media like would drop the ball i used to be able to pick up like something like the village voice or follow a bunch of online mm-hmm. alternative sites and just kind of see this stuff. And I feel like it's harder and harder to do. You have to really actively kind of uh, look. Yeah, there's oh. there's like there's like mid-sized um, sites, kind of like like you know l- large small blogs or small medium-sized blogs. You're not going to get anything the size of like BuzzFeed that's going to cover this stuff. So maybe maybe later, maybe if it if it gets popular with more smaller independent sites, maybe it'll eventually jump. Um, but I you know I, I know that both uh, you know your your all's podcast uh, and my magazine are, are part of a group called 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 Opt Out. Um, and you know I definitely see other sites in that network, like like uh, David Sirota's The Daily Poster, you know, p- posting things that are much more skeptical and are covering stories that you know aren't going to get featured in in you know larger outlets until much later if if at all and i i think a big part of it is um i don't know if if the caller is uh still on but he mentioned he mentioned gawker in like the early 2000s that was that was how they got popular was the fact that they were covering all this stuff that you know people weren't willing to to cover and maybe it wasn't as thoroughly sourced stuff that people cared about exactly yeah and 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 then you know once once they became, um, I forget when they were bought by a private equity fund. I want to say um, they were they were rolled up into a larger network around like 2012, and I think it was around 2015 or 2016 when the actual like court settlement came down and they went bankrupt. Um, but they're you know all, all, all those sites now are owned by you know large private equity companies that that really don't care about anything except for them as uh, you know as like an ad platform. Um, so they don't they don't actually care about you know trying to 
you know, establish a voice or produce good articles. They're literally just trying to get views. They don't actually care what the, you know, where the views come from. I, I think, I think I looked it up earlier and most of the uh, former Gawker sites that are mostly now owned by like Univision, I, I think they, they all get like 10 million views a month. So, you know, they're, they're doing okay. It's so from like a capital point of view, you know, they have nothing to complain about, but that, that need to grow was fulfilled by covering the, you know, the more aggressive stories. And you're only going to get that from smaller outlets that need to differentiate themselves now, I think. Um, Something else with Gawker too, like they had a very specific tone that was uh, very uh, snarky and acidic. And to be honest, I kind of got sick of that tone. Like it was everywhere. It was called the snark era and everyone's commenting in the two thousands with snark and whatever. And like people don't know that snark is a portmanteau. Is that what you know? Or I don't know what you call it, but it's snide, snide remark. It's a comment. Oh, I didn't know that. Too. Oh man. I had no idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was told that maybe I, I know someone's lying to me, but I was told a snark is a, portmanteau of, of snide, snide remark even if it's not officially how it was created that is the best definition i think uh for it but um i will take that any day over what the smarm that has kind of yeah. replaced it and and the fake semi sister girl semi fortune type of language that like adults are using you know kind of like uh uh, hey girl, five times so and so was serving up looks, you know, and it's about like uh, the Supreme Court. It's like, why are you writing about the Supreme Court? Like, what? Like, what? You know, it'll be like a serious topic, and they'll just be having this weird way of talking. And then you look at the um, uh, person who wrote it, and it's like some like white girl who looks like she w- has a Michael Kors watch and just graduated college. I'm like, why are you talking like a drag queen? I don't, I don't understand <laughs> where this is coming from. Like, like, is this what journalism school is teaching you? But everything writes like BuzzFeed now, and it drives me, um, it drives me nuts. There, there was a story in the New York Times about hot, hot cartoon dads, <laughs> and you know, like dads they want to um, oh, bang in the uh, yeah. style section, and everybody gets on the op ed section because of the, the right wingers in there and whatever, but. The stuff happening in the style section, I think, is equally as offensive, but from like a progressive viewpoint. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I like gonna, I saw on this. Yeah. I was going to say that um, there's a couple of things that uh, like that this trend brought that I hate. One is when you see like the the smarmy sister girl thing. Have you noticed that everybody begins sentences with, like, when they are going to make a declarative statement, they say, Y'all? Not, no, they say, not you. Not, you know, not you being a patriot. Oh, 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 oh yeah, yeah, not something. Oh, oh, I hate that. That's the worst, that's the worst Twitterism. I hate, I hate that. that so not so and so. Yeah. Not this. Like, you're simply making a state, just say what it is you want to say. Like, you. Like the, the so when you put the knot in front of it, it makes it sound like, oh my god, this is so insufferable. It's the worst thing in the world. Not this thing happening, you know. Uh, that and and I've seen this on like Buzzfeed type articles. Like it's the something for me. Uh, that's another <laughs> annoying thing that's that people always say. For 
me. Yeah. You know, nobody giving, which is like ballroom talk. You know what I mean? Like when you say like, oh, it's giving, you know, talking. Yeah, it's giving. That's another one. Yeah. But the thing is, like, when you say it's giving, you're supposed to say something like so cutting that it makes the other person want to cry. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So so if you're talking about like, I don't know, like a person's apparel or something, you say like, you know, it's giving um, Prince's backup. Salvation Army vibes or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like it's it's supposed to really hurt their feelings. But when you say like it's giving and then you just say something like, oh, so this like this is the thing that you're going to like expect it to come out of your mouth. It's giving toxic masculinity or, you know, it's giving like it's giving pick me like just call the person to pick me. What the fuck are you saying? It's giving like who cares? Yeah, everything is like uh, somebody's is wants to be on uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, but doesn't even understand <laughs> the the slang. It's it's very yeah. just just weird. Uh, Hirotu, what's going on, man? Yo, what's good, everybody? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, Yo, yeah, yeah. How are you feeling? You. Yeah, can you? Can yeah, you pretty great? good. Yeah, pretty good. Um, yeah, this is a really uh, great talk. It kind of reminds me of. Um, I don't know if this site's problematic or anything, but Cracked, I used to read that back in the day. And they used to have, yeah. like, um, <laughs> they used to always make me laugh. They had no, Cracked was great. The yeah. problem was apparently, like, behind the scenes, it was just like an abuse factory. Oh, like, wow. Like, oh, that yeah, sucks. A lot of former Cracked writers were like, yeah, like, those are kinds of, like, um, workplace, like, uh, bullying and, you know, inappropriate conversations. At least oh, the sucks. writers that I know of were just like straight up sex pests. Um, <clears throat> yeah, one of them like was like um, hanging out in uh, women writers DMs and saying really inappropriate shit. But I will say some of the material that came out of crap was funny as fuck. Yeah, like I I remember like you know I would learn like that's why I cause I would laugh and learn. It was like really I found it like really engaging and I was you know. Um, you know, especially for like, you know, being in my 20s, I, th- I thought it was a really good way to, you know, start conversations. Um, and also, um, you know, I've, I've been gaming my whole life. Um, I don't really consider myself a part of the gaming culture, but uh, it's it, the, the, a lot of this stuff I kind of noticed in gaming media, like, like um, a lot of the people that were reporting on games or talking about games, like they weren't. Uh, we have a game game in our midst. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like, you know, like, I kind of felt like, you know, if you're going to write about games, like, you should play them, you know, or you should, like, have, you know, like, I think, you know, we talk about this in the uh, Champagne Sharks um, Discord, but, like, gate- gatekeeping isn't necessarily bad um, in this, when we're talking about, like, reporting or, or giving critiques and stuff. So, so yeah, I just wanted to put that out there, like, and I think, it, you know, kind of connected with what he was talking about. Like people talking like drag queens or you know the sister talk whatever, but not like don't even know where it comes from or not a part of the uh, the you know yeah, the, 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 the subculture. Culture. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know subculture doesn't exist anymore because there's the, you know everything is online now, so it's really hard to to have these kinds of subculture. So I I can't really blame young people for it, but I do kind of blame millennials for, um, you know like you know basically. Um, Capitalizing on, on subculture and kind of ruining no, it, it, but it was, I don't know. I think it was a lot. Yeah, that's all. But thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now. No, 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 no. I, I think you're on to something here. I, I don't know that I would say it was that they were trying to capitalize per se. I think they were trying to show their employers how cool and down they were by introducing them to subculture slang that 
their peers, coworkers, employers would then carry into their own social media thing. Like, hey, I'm cool. I'm down with black people. Or I'm down with LGBTQ people. Look what they taught me. So they're using it as like a cultural symbol to show that mm-hmm. they're um, like they're not only part of the milieu, or sorry, they're not only an ally, but they're an actual part of the milieu. So they would use it as like a. I'm thinking of like like a like a you know like a 1940s crime movie. Where like somebody goes up to uh, the back door of a speakeasy, and then somebody slides open like the eye hole, you know, and they say the word and they let them in. Yeah, I think that's what like this this uh, subculture language is. It's like it's like you gave the person the password to let them in the back door so that they mm-hmm. can also be cool and, and, and enjoy it. But then it just ends up becoming the mainstream, and then people start to fucking hate it. There's also, but, but, think, but also, oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just gonna say, there's also way more people that want to read about and feel like they're connected to a subculture than are actually part of a subculture. And I, I, I always think about um, my dad was, you know, probably I, I guess he was probably like 24, 25 at the height of like the hippie, you know, era. Um, and he would always talk about how, you know, if you if you look at media about that era, they portray it as if everybody was a hippie. And in actuality, you know, he, he said, you know, he, he only knew like a couple of hippies. Most people were just kind of regular people who were maybe interested in it. And I, I think the, the same is true of subcultures now where people want to feel like they're connected to a particular subculture, um, you know, w- whatever it may be. Uh, and there's way more people who want to feel connected to it than actually are. So if you can find somebody who can seem a, 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 as I, I love that, that you said, you know, a uh, shibboleth, cause I, I think it's exactly correct. If you know, if you can find someone who knows the language, even if they're not really part of or connected to the subculture, but they can appear that way to people who want to read about it. That's just as good to them. But o- over, over time, it winds up eroding the actual subculture. I I think something that happens too is that it's bad enough, even if you know what you're talking about, to become the uh, subculture whisperer to the mainstream. You know, like I think that's in itself kind of um, a bad thing at times because it leaves like a watering down of culture, etc. But I think something that makes it doubly bad is that you have a lot of people who don't even understand or are even qualified to do the subculture, right? That reminds me and of, they're uh, going to be the ones. And I think that's where you get those uh, mistakes like what he was talking about, where it's like, okay, you're not even using this stuff right. Like, um, like, like, like this misuse words all the lot. time. There's a good Frank Zappa. You ever see, you ever see people say um, face card? Like I, I see people say face card a lot. And then they'll post a picture of their face. And it's like, that's not what face card means. Face card doesn't mean you have a nice face. Face cards mean face card means people recognize you like so you go to like this neighborhood or you hang out at this nightclub or whatever and people know you just by face so they'll let you in or like they recognize you in this neighborhood and they're like you know they'll like they'll give you love it doesn't mean that you have a pretty face or you have a handsome face <laughs> or, or, or how about a real popular one on the left simp uh, and unfortunately oh oh it's become God, something oh totally God. different. Yeah. It's all Sim, over the place. Sim like, just means you're nice to a time. woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, but, another but, one was um was uh um Stan from uh, at Eminem. Like nobody even knew where that came from. <laughs> I, one time somebody told me that um they were tired of how New York is simping for Andrew Cuomo when he was uh, really popular during <laughs> during the pandemic. 
and, and, and that heard, that was the worst use of it um I saw but uh, something I was thinking about was a key and a key and peel um bit and the show in general wasn't you know particularly funny but this one bit I thought was pr- pretty accurate they were talking about how both of them were the token black people at their schools and all the white kids would think that they were so cool but they didn't really know black culture that well but everything they did you know like the school dance whatever everybody would be um and actually they did actual skit about this too where uh one token shows up but then a second one shows up and they're both like worried the other one's gonna expose them as you know being (laughs) inauthentic but i feel like that person is the culture whisperer now like the person who is like okay these people don't know so i can tell them anything and they're gonna eat it they're gonna eat it up you know these editors and So, so you kind of have like the blind leading the blind. I feel like there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, um, this uh, there's a there's kind of it's pretty pretty popular clip, but uh, Frank Zappa talks about like uh, the, the decline of the music business or something, and I think it's kind of connected to this. Like before, it was a bunch of um, it was a bunch of old people just you know randomly trying to find the the next you know not even next hot thing, but just like you know young people, and then you know, the next generation comes along who thinks that they're cool and thinks that they're a part of this subculture. And then they start to cultivate what they think is cool. And it's kind of, uh, it goes downhill from there. I don't know if anybody has seen, seen that. No, no, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that one. Uh, is it on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah. I'll put it in the discord. Yeah. Oh, cool. cool. It's, I mean, it's, it sounds totally correct. Like I remember, um, you know, in, in the nineties, I was real invested in trying to be like trying to be punk. Um, but my only actual connection to like punk was like going to the record store and buying like punk Rama CDs, you know, like I, I didn't really know any other punks. My only exposure to, you know, the punk subculture was through music and, you know, I might know like one guy, but I was very mentally invested in trying to be punk. Um, and I knew a lot of people like that, and we would argue all the time about like what was and wasn't punk, and we we didn't we didn't fucking know what punk was. We didn't know any punk. <laughs> we were kind of like making it up at, like as we went along. So whatever we thought it was 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 I'm sure completely wrong from what it actually meant. You know, five or ten years you know uh, previously. You know what's, you but, know what's but wild picture... is that like I, mm-hmm. have you noticed that people now regard Avril Lavigne as a punk goddess? Yeah, <laughs> and I remember when Avril Lavigne came out, I was like, "What the fuck is this?" He was like, phony. Yeah, I, yeah. And and like n- n- nothing against her personally, but we 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 hated her. Um, or I hear that about like uh, emo, like what what people talk about as being emo now is like unrecognizable. Oh my, to me. not that I was ever especially oh my into God. it. Yeah, that is the worst, man. Emo. <laughs> It's completely different from what it was in the night. Like, yeah. But the thing is, so... even emo back then, like you used to pick on emo kids. Emo was not cool at all. Yeah. Like, yeah. If you were an emo kid, you were bottom of the barrel. But you know, the thing with the whole um, punk thing is, like, you guys didn't know what you were talking about, whatever. But nowadays, you can get totally hired to be an expert. Like, like the editors today would give you guys would have given you guys a call. Oh, totally! Like, like no problem. <laughs> like, like no one is able because I can to bet anybody on anything. Tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty funny. And you know, we're talking about the bus speedification of media, but I think also the Tumblr side of it. But it's kind of weird to say that because BuzzFeed itself 
absorbed so many Tumblrisms that it's almost like redundant at this point to say BuzzFeed and, and Tumblr because they do a lot of the same stuff, but this kind of excessively fawning, like so-and-so appeared on Jimmy Fallon last night and was serving up looks. And it's just like, you know, an article. I'm like, why is this even an article? And you look at it and it's 15 uh, GIFs with one sentence of each GIF. And I'm like, you have to be pissed off that you went to journalism school and got like a six-figure debt <laughs> so that go, you can yeah, post, post gifts for a living. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get, yeah, I get pissed yeah. off for the opposite reason, man. I, I get really annoyed when I see I like put like a, a 4,000, 5,000 word article out that's taken me like three or four days and I get like 20,000 views and then someone does a list of like 20 gifts and it trends on Twitter. And they get like millions of views. I'm like, gee, what am I doing this for? Like, what's the point, man? <laughs> I feel like a lot of people must feel that way, right? And and then you know what I was thinking about that. Well, I was thinking about like, hey, you know what? The person who's actually still in the muck doing the articles, it's gonna work out for them because they're building a craft, and that person who's just doing listicles is going to have like whatever mm-hmm. writing skills they had, like atrophy. But as time goes on, it's like realizing. It's not gonna matter if no one could read. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter yeah. how well you hone your writing craft if you inherit a world where no one can actually even uh, have the attention span to read anymore. So maybe the listicle people are gonna be the ones thriving in the in the future. Like they're not gonna be able to string three sentences together. But in a world where no one can read three sentences in a row without their eyes glazing over, they're gonna like inherit the earth, and which is an even scarier thought to me. It, it hurts to say this, but the Freddie DeBoer column that you sent me was bought on the money is that people like people don't know how to read anymore and it, i actually I, I feel it affecting me now like i feel when i start reading long articles I, I i can feel my attention slipping away that i'm looking for something else to do or i have an opinion about it so let me go tweet something or whatever like i feel those impulses and the thing is like a lot of people aren't self-aware enough to know that they can't read and they they can't synthesize ideas into something interesting for someone else to consume or think about it's just grind out like your surface level thoughts on any particular thing and that's good enough to make an article you don't have to take steps two three and four so i mean to to take it back to where we were or where we started the topic that's why i think a lot of cultural criticism ends up in the hands like a lot of the um beyond step two cultural criticism ends up being uh, dished out by the reactionaries because they don't have access to these media. Like they're not generally getting bylines, and when they are, they're in like fringe publications or at least publications associated with the right wing. So they have time to sit around and ponder like, what is it that's so wrong with this culture? And most of the time, they come to bad conclusions. But you can tell they've put in the effort not only to do their homework, totally. but also to synthesize what they've learned into something that's worth reading. Totally. And, I mean, and they're, they get um, – I, I think it, it comes back to the fact of, of them doing adversarial readings of a lot of stuff. Like if, if you're pissed off by an article, you'll read it way closer – than somebody who just generally agrees with it, um, in, in my opinion. Like, I, I found that when we've had an article that, that goes really viral, the, 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 the comments that we get that are actually the most insightful or at least show 
that someone actually read it are usually from the most reactionary places. I don't know if anybody is familiar with uh, Hacker News. It's like a very like tech libertarian, like Silicon Valley website. We've had a couple yeah. of articles that went really viral on there. Um, they actually sit down and read the article. They may be wrong in their conclusions, but you can tell that they actually really closely read it and they they call out real specific things. Whereas, you know, the the reactions that we get from kind of just like the general, you know, like like Twitter liberal, they may not have have, have even read past the headline. Um, and like, oh, it's not oh. that they're going to give a good synthesis, but they're actually going to read it, even if only not, because they hate not it. Not only do they not read past the headline, they will tell you, I didn't even read this article. <laughs> or, oh, I didn't oh, watch yeah. this movie, or I didn't listen to this song, or I didn't watch this. People would say, I didn't watch Dave Chappelle's comedy special, and then have an opinion on it. Like, it, but wait, let's have an opinion, have a printed article. Like, right. like the editor paid you to write an article where you announced in the beginning of the article that you didn't read it for moral, that you didn't watch it for moral reasons. And I'm like, why would an editor pay you for this? It, yeah, it blows like, my mind. Like them exposing themselves to a piece of media or some ideas, like a piece of writing or anything like if they expose themselves to a thing that they don't like, it's going to leave a permanent negative psychological imprint on them, which is where yeah, everybody's very like, fragile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very like, fragile like, now, and that it, fragile, yeah. that fragility is also why you have to write the way you do. Like you have to write in this cotton candy way all the time. The weaponized. Oh God forbid, someone is not affirmed in yeah, five seconds. Weaponized fragility. It's like people use the word emotional labor so fucking much now, <laughs> and like they take it to mean I did work and I felt something that I didn't like. That's emotional labor. So I did labor and had emotions about it. When I was like, no, emotional labor was you have, as a service worker, you had to fake having a smile and liking your customer and making them feel welcome when they walked into your fast food joint. Or as uh, um, an airline hostess, uh, you had to pretend like the asshole who ordered like his fourth martini and was getting increasingly impatient you had to just stole your feelings about that person and give them service with a smile. So it's not just that you had to do your work. You had to do your work. And part of the corporate mm-hmm. culture was the fake feelings that you put on in front of the customer. Nobody is asking you to put on fake feelings for watching a comedy special that you don't like. As a matter of fact, you should give your genuine feelings about the comedy special you don't like. But now they're even saying, well, the fact that I had to expose myself to this information in the first place is so horribly traumatic that I should be paid just for the thought of I, I should have to be paid for thinking about Dave Chappelle and then writing about him. I, 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 I don't fucking understand it. And, and, and you know, like people now use even emotional labor. Like the the point of emotional labor was that this is not necessary to do the job. Like, why do I have to act like I'm your best friend? Uh, to help you book your hotel room, like you know, and why do I have to be like, oh, I'm sorry that worked out. Oh, it didn't work out. Like, like why should I have to do that to do a job? But now people use emotional labor for th- for things that are actually what you're supposed to be doing emotionally. What I mean by that is, um, someone was like, yeah, you know, I had to tell my friend I don't have the bandwidth right now for the emotional labor of hearing your problems. I'm like, wait. Being able to listen to your friend's problems is not <laughs> unnecessary emotional component you, of friendship. That's 
part of friendship. Like, what do you think friendship is? Or, or like, I think there's articles where, like, you know, these, these women write, uh, men demand emotional labor from their partners in terms of being the therapist. And I'm like, wait, wait a second. Like, part of being in a relationship is, you know, hearing your uh, partner's problems. Like, you might say, like, they overdo it or whatever, but it's not emotional. <laughs> there's a better word for that. Yeah, the word is being in a relationship. Like, okay, T, has this, D, does this happen to you? Because this happens to me a lot from my more liberal-minded friends, which is they'll ask to, like, talk to me about something. And it's like, oh, you know, I don't know enough about this particular issue. And then they'll talk to me about it, and I'll give them the information that they need and so on. And then they'll say, you know, I, I, I'm sorry to put you through the emotional labor. This is something that I should know. But I'm like... You just asked me for information and I gave it to you willingly. You don't have to apologize for anything. Like I'm, I'm your friend. That's why we're friends, so that we do things for each other. And yeah, like, yeah. I mean, so, I that's how it should be. But I'm not mad about it or whatever. I'm like, what the fuck are your other friends putting you through that you feel you have to do this with me? You know what I mean? Like, it, it's not coming out of the blue. I kind of feel like they might have felt that they fucked up by not showing enough contriteness and deference talking to the other i'm assuming that they're black friends because it's usually like stuff related to like black radical politics or black history stuff like that right so they'll ask me and i'll let them know and then they'll say oh sorry to put you through this and so on and so on i'm like so i i get the sense that you are talking to other you're talking to like liberal-minded black people that might know something more than you do and act like you asking for information that they have available and then giving it to you is some great and onerous burden that you as a white person should just like walk around rending your garments about. Like I, so on the one hand, it's like, it's annoying, but on the other hand, I'm like, damn, man, it's gotta be fucking rough out there right now. Has anyone read oh. the, uh, the, there, there was a really good interview. Um, or right, so it was a really, really interesting interview in the Atlantic, um, in 2018 where somebody, uh, went and talked to, uh, Arlie Hawks child who, who, you know, originated the term emotional labor, um, in, uh, I believe it was like a sociology study that, that, that she wrote. Um, and they, they basically interviewed her about like what, what she thought of, you know, how the term was used now. And she was really clear that like, if, if, if it's not part of the job that you're getting paid for, it's, it's not labor. So it's not emotional labor. It, it, it was really interesting. She was trying to be very like, like equanimous about like, you know, people were using it to express some kind of like sincerely held emotional belief, but, um, it's it's really interesting to hear her kind of grapple with you know the the way that people were misusing her her term, which she did you know like m multiple books and studies on. Oh, uh, for sure. And I also want to get to Jason in the queue. He's been waiting very very patiently. So Jason, feel free to unmute and and uh, also I'm gonna give a quick announcement for people in the audience or whatever. Feel free to tweet this out. We're up in here what the topic is and get people in here for sure but yeah jason by all means uh let her rip she was a skater boy emotional labor boy <laughs> i don't even remember what i was gonna say because you you went you went so hey, many somebody, places hey when this episode gets published if y'all don't clip that shit i'm gonna kick all of you out of the room <laughs> No, you know, the panel was mostly giving me life until you anti-simped Avril. And then I felt myself <laughs> undertaking significant emotional labor to cope. But, um, <laughs> no, you, you know, it's it's funny, man. You're, you're going all around. Um, 
and you're touching sort of different things um, that that intrigue me. One is, you know, as as a couple of you know, I work in academia, and um, and uh, what you you just brought up about the emotional labor. There was somebody um, in my department who reached out to me because she was excited about Amanda Gorman and Lynn Scamwell Miranda. And, um, you know, I explained to her that I had no interest in either of them, that I viewed them as mascots who were sort of performing um, a very uh, impotent version of POC or whatever they call it now for uh, white liberals that, um, you know, allowed them to feel uh, the titillation of progress without making any investment in doing anything, you know. And so she says, well, can you explain to me? So I can understand um, the problem with Amanda Gorman or, or, or Lynn Scamwell, uh, at which point, you know, I thought, you know, again, about emotional labor. I was like, man, do I want to fucking do it? Like, why the fuck do I have to do it? I got to write a long email right now. I got shit to do. I got class prep. You know, I'm thinking before I could finish the thought, she had written another email. She's like, I want to deeply apologize for asking <laughs> you as a black person to explain this to me. And I was like, man, people are, people have lost their shit here. But, um, what you were saying about these, um, the, the, about media, um, you know, and the root obviously uh, speaks directly to an experience I had. I used to write here and there for the root. They had been bought by Univision. I think what is really interesting is because these places have become ad farms, um, and and there's very little oversight. What it's left people with is the ability to run uh, sort of grifts and pyramid schemes um, and to promote their friends and to get this, you know, kind of milk to teat without anyone knowing while doing these kind of uh, drag queen um, sort of uh, girlfriend articles. Uh, one of my favorite ones ever was Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker or Congressional Gangster. Do you remember oh that? Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> shit. I, I remember that one. That. Can we just and go she got ahead? mad? And she got oh. mad when people didn't like that article. I remember that that author got really sassy. Was it Morgan Jerkins? Who, who I forgot who it was. Her name but... is Monique oh. Judge. And it, oh, oh, that's, and I, I remember it was MJ, and I said Morgan Jerkins, but yeah, Monique Judge. Yeah, the piece begins. Can we just go ahead and admit that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is officially the Suge Knight of Capitol Hill? Uh, Don't bother uh, arguing with me. You know it's true. If you watch last night's State of the Union address. You saw the congressional OG show up with her gang in tow, wearing their colors and ready to drag your little president to hell if they needed to. <laughs> so good. It's yeah, such yeah, brilliant I, parody. No, you know yeah, what, I'm going to no, tie it back article, to Harry Potter. That article was actually very formative in my life because that's when, <laughs> no, that is when I absolutely, okay. There were a lot of like, like um, blue check black liberals that I talked to um, that I was like, still kind of cool with and when i when they were just like praising that article and they thought it was so funny and they were like doing the cry laugh emojis i was like y'all are so fucking corny why do i like you i don't understand like this is weird this is weird shit i would never lower myself to do this and i would never lower myself to laugh at it in public like what the fuck are you doing like, you, you know you know how like in those um like white girl comedy movies like, uh, what's her name? Um, uh, Melissa McCarthy. Her movies are notorious for this. That when she's uh, Melissa McCarthy and like that whole like uh, like that whole peer group, like that whole coterie of like SNL yeah. white girls. Yeah, like when they are about to do something naughty or like uh, 
you know, mean or subversive or borderline criminal, they would start playing trap music or start playing like gangster rap music. As if, you know what I mean? Like, as if like, like cutting out early on work was the most gangster thing in the world. Like they would do that. And I kind of feel like black people who do that shit, like call Nancy Pelosi, Suge Knight, they're just playing into Sure. That. Yeah. Like they're, they're, um, doing like mockery and minstrelsy of our culture. Like, yes, just, they are. Yeah, it's the white chicks doing gang gang science thing. You know what I mean? Like, but now yeah. you're the black person that is like forcing Nancy Pelosi into doing a gang sign when that's not what she meant to do and, at all. And I she think that's those, what the insidious thing is. is weird. Yeah, it's it's bad enough when they're corny, but it's insidious because what they do is they render subversive language and culture impotent and ultimately regressive. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's. That's sort of where we are. And it made me think about something you brought to my attention without knowing, um, because how would you know who's reading your tweets? Uh, but it was the um, that really regressive uh, rant about black males that people were retweeting that, you know, was like, would have made David Duke. <laughs> which which like, one? That narrows down nothing. It was the one. It really narrowed down, bro. It was the one where they can't even die right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and they were and they were like yeah. he read the what's her name Aisha was like he he read you, you the film <laughs> yeah oh you that know? was a read and then like she, people got on her ass for that and she deleted it and you would have thought okay so maybe she felt like okay wow I really shouldn't have done that I should have thought harder about it no she just deleted the tweet so that her notifications wouldn't be like just sure. to hell and then she comes back oh. and she was like. She's like, yeah, these these uh, homophobes and um, I don't know if she said Negro or incels or I don't know if she said incels or not. I don't remember. I think she that. did. Did mm-hmm. she? Man, yeah, but she was like, yeah, you know, it's all these like homophobes it was something slurish or whatever. Yeah, and it's like, do you think that it, all the people that responded to you and had a problem with what, first of all, I would say like easily half of the responses were women. Easily. Easily. Um, but do you think that all of the men that are responding to you right now are, is that they're incels or are you just saying that to your white audience so that when you get checked by your own community you can play it off and say oh but it's not like black people that you like or would want to care about or ally yourself with it's the black incels and it's the the scary black homophobes that we tell you are like the worst in the community so the the rant itself like the tiktok rant itself was like rehashed Moynihan report in sassy language talking about being the least educated, most incarcerated, most homophobic, this, that, and the third. I was like, oh, okay, so what you're doing is saying to white people, it's like what this person said is safe because all the people that are responding to this are the ones that feel called out by what that guy is saying has nothing to do with the fact that he just smeared an entire subgroup of black people. Well, yeah, I think you made it a point um, earlier, someone did, um, you know, that essentially said that an investment in intelligence and depth kind of loses you ground in the attention economy. So we, we train ourselves to read less, um, to pick out the easiest points. And it sort of leads to this formulaic discourse. Um, I think you saw some of the results. You see some of the results of this like every fucking day. But but um, in the past week, one of, one of the notable ones was the, uh, the, the, the website formerly known as Deadspin or maybe still known as Deadspin with a different staff. Did you see that um, piece that they wrote about the white coach? Oh, yeah. No. Who was actually half black? He would actually biracial, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like they they have the formula down, and they they have the talking points, but they haven't actually done any of the research. 
and it leads to them using the formula incorrectly against the people they're supposed to be supporting. But that doesn't matter. And, 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 but, but, but I think what happens with that too is if you're paid for clicks and eyeballs, the longer that you spend researching anything, you can write a whole different article and get more clicks. Like, what's the point of writing twice as long on one article that's going to get the same amount of clicks as opposed to just getting it out there and then hurrying up and generating a second clickbait article and now you have double the articles, double the click, and double the pay. And I think it's almost baked into the whole mechanism now uh, to incentivize uh, spending less time on things and constantly just um, getting more stuff out there to maximize the amount of eyeballs you generated in a given sure. day. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I agree for sure. But I do think there is a sort of like other side of the coin thing with it where some places, some sites definitely intentionally publish the wrong information. There's sort of an old internet adage that, like, if you ask a question, you might not get an answer. But if you give the wrong answer to a question on the internet, someone will always correct you. And I feel like I feel like it's part of the engagement with these articles. Like, the more things you get wrong, the more people that can point it out online, and then the more clicks that drive back to your like article. I, I, I do give think you fifty-fifty sometimes. I can give you a related um phenomenon to that that i think is closely related i noticed they like to troll in particular i feel black women and it's not quite getting things wrong it's giving white people credit for something that black women did so they can get the black women to make it viral and i've i've noticed that this is like a i don't know if they discovered it by accident at first but i feel like they totally troll on purpose now what, what it is is every month they'll be like a Kendall Jenner um, makes box braids popular. And it's kind of like, I'm like, okay, I can believe in 2014, maybe that's an innocent mistake. But at this point, you just know if you put that article out there, a bunch of black people are going to be like, what? Who made box braids popular? So it's like, they do it all the time. Like, uh, these two white girls invented a credible TikTok dance. And I started thinking like what you're saying, similar to the getting it wrong thing. Where they're not trying to troll minorities to um, get them outraged. It's like outrage farming. I think that's another thing that happens, but it's a innocent sounding outrage farming. It isn't the old edgelord snarky type of we're going to generate controversy by being mean. It's going to be like, tee hee hee, look what we did. You know, oops, did we do that? You know, and but yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, I think that's totally a thing. T, do you think it's something similar that happens when, um, and I, you've you've talked about this a bunch on like uh, Champagne Sharks, where like the New York Times will will run a piece where it's basically just like a writer complaining about their spouse that totally just could have been, you know, like a story among friends. There's no reason for it to be in the New York Times, and it, it, it kind of feels like the editors are intentionally making the person into like an object of mockery. Like maybe the writer didn't even know that that's what was going on, but some editor was like, oh man, we're going to run this and they're going to get made fun of for like a week and we're going to get so many views out of this. I was talking about, I was talking about on the show and by the way, I um, moved to the next caller to keep it flowing, but Jason, Jason, feel free. Hold on. Are you able to hear me? Yeah. Okay. I thought I heard you talking at the same time. Oh no, I'm Go ahead. I wanted to make one quick point, which was, and I hate to bring this up because I actually, I like Sarah Haji. I do. 
and I, I think she's really cool. I think her brother's really cool also. But I think occasionally, I don't know if it's that, like, people come up with ideas and their editors don't care enough about them to say, yeah, that's funny between us, but you probably shouldn't do that. Or if their editors encourage them to do this kind of shit, like egg them on. So after Joan Didion died, um, Sarah Haji wrote an article or like a wrote like a, pre, a brief blog post in Gawker, basically saying that like like you know white women inconsolable, and basically made like it was it was just like a really mean kind of like oh white women are so sad that Joan Didion died like well I dropped out but it wasn't even school. clever. I've never read anything about her. And it's like what the what is wrong with you like that. Uh, she just she but somebody who a lot of people like who's writing a lot of people admire, not just white women. A lot of people, including myself, admire Joan Didion's work. And she passes away, and you make it about white women tears. Like, yeah, there are going to be white women's tears because somebody that they admire, who I think wrote very good work that a lot of people can relate to, and by the way was at the time was one of the people brave enough to speak up about the Central Park Five, not after the fact, not after it turns out that they were innocent, but during the time said, okay, the way that they were conducting this is very reminiscent of a lynch mob, and defended the Central Park Five at a time when that was not a popular thing to do. And you want to Even among black people, was it, it wasn't yeah. popular to do. No, it wasn't. Like People were trying to throw them under the bus and be like, well, we're, we're not like them. Like the whole, the, uh, the whole dialogue, the whole discourse about Wilden came from the Central Park Five. So, and a lot of people, or a lot of black people at the time, were distancing themselves from the Central Park Five because these were like the, you know, the hoodlums and thugs that... We Look at Bell Hooks. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, uh, anyway, to think about it to the point, um, people will just like write stuff like that and like that's supposed to pass for humor or pass for like deep insight. And it's like, no, not only are you doing something that is like culturally not valuable, like it carries no value whatsoever, but you're also unnecessarily pissing off a whole lot of people uh, who did nothing to deserve it and shitting on somebody who did nothing to deserve being shat on. Like you're supposed to, or not supposed to, but like if you're going to do the Christopher Hitchens um, missionary position thing where you take down a popular figure, there should at least be something about that person or personality that is worth shitting on. Like for Mother Teresa, when Christopher Hitchens uh, took on her saintly character, he showed that, yeah, but she was a purveyor of misery and an absolute hypocrite. She caused a whole lot of people to suffer unnecessarily. Um, but Joan, like, what's the worst thing you can say about her? I don't know that, like, maybe but, early but, in her life but, she was but, conservative. But the, the problem, but the problem with what that w- woman did is she didn't even know why she dislike Joan Didion except for that it it made white women mad like and that was it but the other thing that got me upset too but that was that okay if your whole thing is going to be about shitting on white people all the time like I know some black people who genuinely don't have any white friends like uh, Vida our co-host of a show who's watching always mentions that she doesn't have uh, white friends in real life. And I never hear her talk bad obsessively about like white people and what white women are doing and everything. But I always notice these authors and freelance writers for these publications who have the most to say about like, you know, white people this, white people that have like all white friends. Like like even all like we you know 
yes, even when the responses were coming to her her article, right? First off, she made it so that you couldn't reply to it, which I think was kind of like a chicken thing to do. Like if you're gonna you can't throw stones and hide your hands. So she tweeted it and then she made it so that you can't reply to the tweet. So the only things that were coming in the responses were fawning from her friends, which is more of that fragility thing, right? And there were all like these these white women, they were like, um, oh my God, you really read her for filth. And it's like, okay, you're white. Like what are you doing? Like, is this your is this like your white guilt to just so I'm not one of those white people that gets mad. Oh, white women, they suck, you know, and, and you're white yourself. And it's just like this weird theater where, first off, um, you have to act like you hate white women so much. But all your, like, fans and boosters are, like, white women who just enjoy having you shit on them. And like, more and more, please. I'm so white. I'm so bad, you know. And yeah, punish me, mom. drives me like, nuts. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's good. It, it's giving sadomasochism is what it is. Yes. It's yeah, the, yeah. It's so, the so, white guilt for me. And one of the things that I was going to say in response to what um, Kurt said, one of the things that I've been talking about with somebody the other day was I feel like there should be a new rule in this era of outrage farming and in the kind of stuff that Lewis was talking about, which I totally agree. I think they get things wrong on purpose, and I think they um, play dumb on purpose is – Editors should be listed with the writer, I think, as a new practice. Like, for example, written by so-and-so, edited by so-and-so. And I bet you so much of this would get sorted out. Yeah. Because I think a lot of these editors, if they had to put their names on this stuff, like, they know these writers are hungry. They know a lot of these writers um, are attention-starved. And a lot of them come from Twitter and social media where all they care about is going viral. And they bring that attitude to... Um, the actual writing, like I know the writer of that article, Sarah, was somebody who was like a Twitter star, and she um, gets a lot of her writing stuff from being on Twitter, and she brings that same type of um, I want to get quick engagement and quick outrage to get clicks type of attitude to her writing. But a lot of these editors, I think, are happy to just throw these people under the bus and let them uh, ruin their names in their careers while they get to kind of hide but i really think they should start making editors put their names because i was like first off this editor is not doing her any service as a writer because first off the thing was like three paragraphs long at no point there was no wit to it and it was like a good editor at, um should be able to protect you from yourself and your worst impulses not just let you lean into them and throw it out there and wash your hands of the of the thing but if if this ever passes, this whole way of writing, you know, ever passes and like real writing comes into vogue, or they just move on to different uh, bullshit writers, like like maybe right now they're into like women of color or or queer people of color or whatever as the bullshit writing of the day. Maybe in the future they'll be into um um a different type of bullshit writer, and your uh, your specification your um your specific expertise, so to speak, is not in vogue anymore, you're going to have no good clippings. You're going to have no sign that you know how to write. You're going to have no actual mm-hmm. honed skills. Like, these people are doing these writers uh, this service by just letting them pass off uh, snarky tweet threads as as writing, you know? Um, yeah, they're not helping them build any craft or do anything. And I think um, they should restart putting... Um, 
editors' names on the bylines. I think this should be something about recruiting from the internet, where like even if you recruit someone from the internet, like give them a crash course in how to write anyway. Don't just let them um, tweet thread their way into an article and just and just just publish that. And the last thing I'm gonna say is, I think Harry Potter is a good example of like where all this comes from. What I mean by that is, I remember when Harry Potter first came out and was really big in like the whenever it first came out, and it was the 90s or the 2000s, but whenever it first came out, everybody was trying to kind of defend it by saying, it's making kids read. It's making kids read. More kids are reading now than ever. But then people were like, no, these kids need to be reading like the classics and everything. And it's like, oh, that's the old, that's the old way. You're a conservative. You're a reactionary. Uh, it's okay for kids and even adults to read Harry Potter because they were saying it was going to be a gateway drug in a way like like it's gonna make all these people like great readers and get them to the adult stuff and instead we just have a lot of 30 and 40 year olds <laughs> who just read young adult stuff and even if they read grown stuff they want to read like young adult stuff and uh unfortunately she wasn't able to get the tech the tech stuff uh worked out but the squeak core thing was a perfect example of how everything is written like ya novels but even oh, yeah. the MFA stuff, even the MFA stuff, and um, Jason knows more about the MFA culture than I do. But I've tried a lot of modern MFA stuff, and it's like, okay, this is YA literature, but about a twenty-something navigating her first job out of college. But this just feels like Harry Potter for grown people. Like this is not grown-up writing, and I feel like the same thing is happening with the. Buzzfeed, Tumblr-ish type of writing where they're like, hey, people need to read. It's better than not reading. If we have to get 20 listicles, if we have to get 20 gift listicles to get people to read about uh, the Supreme Court abortion decision, then so be it. At least like they're reading, but it is just leading to people who just can't think and process beyond gifts. And well, yeah, real that's, quick, that's um, the, I have to say. The, the, so, one of the earlier callers mentioned um, Gamergate in particular and was talking about kind of like the game review, game writing, uh, like video game journalism scene around that time, which I guess would have been like 2012, 2013, um, maybe a little bit, a little bit later. Uh, if you go back and, and look up the, the writers who were actually like good writers who were writing about video games at that time, um, pretty much none of them are actually still like still writing. They, they've all moved on to do other things in so sometimes in completely different industries where like the, the, the fact that this sort of content is, is pushed to the fore doesn't, doesn't just prioritize bad writers. It actually pushes good writers out because they go, well, like what, why am I doing this? Like, this is, this is pointless. I don't want to write this crap and it doesn't pay good anyway. So like to, to, to what you were saying about like, you know, you're going to wind up with like a, a bunch of crappy clips that aren't any good. Why would you do that to yourself if you actually care about writing? You're just going to go on to like Medium and just write it for yourself and get a regular job where you can actually get paid, you know, a decent amount of money instead of putting yourself through, you know, nonstop abuse to make content that you're not even proud of. So it's it's just it has really long term like ripple on effects too. With uh, with video game journalism, um, I think this is this is a bit of an odd example in terms of like other types of like media spheres people write about like film and like television and stuff like that. Um, I think with video game journalism, like you said, a lot of the people that write about this kind of stuff end up leaving like 
online media and like print media and they go to other avenues within video games. I think that is actually a very rare situation that is specific to video game journalism because you very rarely hear about someone who reviews television shows or reviews movies for a living suddenly getting into the industry. Whereas with video game journalism, a lot of these people do genuinely find work in like uh, PR firms or even in rare situations, I've heard of a lot of um, older sort of like 2010s, early 2000s uh, video game journalists actually writing video games now. So it, 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 are it you is saying, an old are example. You the good ones? Are you saying the yeah. good ones end up? Yeah, see, 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 now this is why I think happens. I think it does happen in other mediums, but in reverse. I think in TV, film, and comics and stuff, the bad ones <laughs> into the industry. So in the way that kind of heartens me that you said in 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 uh video games, the good writers who can't take the bus speed the bus speed type tumbler type writing mm. they have to do are able to go into uh video games. But to me, I feel like when it comes to comics, when it comes to T V, when it comes to movies, you writing in a tumbler bus speedy way is actually what gets you pick to be um in the industry so i think in addition to everything else and this is why i think a lot of the reactionaries unfortunately do much better industry coverage in a lot of um um instances is these people have no interest in getting access to um the media in fact in fact something that i find really interesting about them is and this is what liberals and progressives used to do they're really into bootstrapping and doing their own DIY indie um, comics. So, like, everybody hates that uh, Richard Meyer diversity in comics guy, but that guy crowdfunded, like, three or four different um, comic books. He didn't just say, hey, I just want to, I desperately want to work for Marvel and Peanuts, Marvel and DC, and I'll take Peanuts to do it. So I'm like, okay, love him or hate him, that guy creates... And there's like several other people, like three or four other people that I've seen just said, hey, we don't like what we see. We're going to do all this long form criticism about it all day long. And we're going to actually make um, comics and crowdfund them. And they get the, the comics crowdfunded. And they used to be the punk rock way of doing stuff. They used to be the hip hop mm -hmm. way of doing stuff. And it's not anymore on the left of progressives. Now, left people and progressive people think that the corporations are their friends now in a weird way that I've never seen before. Like, for example, Spotify, um, Neil Young gave like some kind of threat to Spotify because he was upset about Joe Rogan and whatever. And Spotify was like, well, goodbye, Neil Young. Uh, you're an old 70-something 70 hippie and Joe Rogan's our number two draw on the whole channel. And then people were like tweeting like these different like blue checks and stuff. They're like, I'm so disappointed in you, Spotify. And, you know, and, and the people are talking like they're like, but this they're still going to listen to Spotify. They're still going to keep their Spotify subscription. Right? Exactly. First off, they're and, still going to keep their spot. I was going to say, ahead. I think it actually speaks to something that's uh, a little bit more insidious, which is I think for most people, the um, the levers that they're supposed to be able to pull to affect a political result are pretty much broken. Like. There's nothing that you can actually do to make a politician 
uh, do what you ask them to do if you're anywhere to the left of like an 80s Reaganite. So if you vote, the person that you vote for doesn't really give a fuck about you. You're just voting for a better alternative to like super like far right wing reactionaries. And what they've done instead is turn corporations into something approximating their idea of government. Like you making your voice heard um, on social media is supposed to affect the same kind of result as going to a politician's town hall and yelling at them. But uh, whereas politicians are ostensibly supposed to be beholden to their constituency, their voter base. um, So like if they're not listening to their voter base, they're not doing their job right. But a corporation's responsibility isn't to the end user, the corporation's responsibility, because the end user is just the like financial supply. Like they're providing the stream of income, but their actual responsibility is to their shareholders. So for people to get upset at Spotify and say, uh, you know, it's, it's terrible that you have Joe Rogan on um, and even Neil Young thinks it's so much of a problem that he's going to leave the platform. All Spotify has to do is just take one look at their um, the fastest-growing areas of their listener base and cross-reference that with people who are listening to Neil Young music and make a decision from there. Well, if Neil Young leaves, is it a good business decision to keep Joe Rogan on, or is it a good business decision to let go of Joe Rogan and keep Neil Young? And very obviously, they're looking at Joe Rogan's audience and they're like, People are making us all kinds of money. Why the why the fuck yeah. do we get rid of our most profitable product? So they tell people to go pound sound, and then all you can do is just get mad about it on the internet. And it's, the the, comp, the corporation's job is to do exactly what they just did. Why did you think it was going to turn out any other way? But thing that's weird about it is the actual disappointment, and it's kind of like um, these corporations do these kind of bullshit things where they have. Um, some diverse writers of different types and they have like these pandering articles about RuPaul's drag race or about, um, you know, some new black movie or about, um, Issa Rae, how great she is. And they let a black person write the article about the black person that a gay person write an article about the gay people. And with that pandering, somehow like a lot of like modern liberals or whatever, get a weird sense of ownership over a corporation or weird feeling that the corporation is their ally. And to the extent that the legal fiction of a corporation being a person is true. I mean, I don't think it is true, but to the extent it is true, that person would be a sociopath. It would not be an ally that goes to marches with you and everything. And, and this woman tweeted today, um, she was a blue check who tweeted like her profile is educator and host who writes about history, politics, education, civil rights, pop culture, and feminism. And she tweeted out this tweet, uh, the fact that Spotify, and she tagged Spotify. So I guess to just shame them because they care. <laughs> chose The fact that Spotify chose Joe Rogan over Neil Young is absolutely disgusting. And then somebody retweeted that and goes, what do they think corporations are? And I just thought that was the perfect uh, yeah. response. Like, 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 what does she think this thing is supposed, supposed to do? And we're in a weird, weird world now where the actual 
reactionary people have more healthy skepticism and distrust of the huge corporations than than your average um liberal who likes Squeakor and is into Harry Potter and everything. Like all those people are getting mad at the Harry Potter people for um you know, letting J.K. Rowling appear in the reunion special, but they're still going to watch the special. They just want to make sure she's not in it, you know? They're still going to make her money. They're still going to watch the damn special. You know what I mean? Uh, they don't have enough principles to just not watch the thing. They just want some um, token gesture that she's not going to be visible to them uh, while they're watching it and helping her get rich. And if they do that, they'll believe the corporation is their friend. And if someone responded to me, they were like, oh, you're giving conservatives too much credit because conservatives, um, they like that black rifle coffee thing and uh, and they'll, they'll eat up all these uh, stupid companies that pander to them. And I was like, first off, conservatives are supposed to kiss business ass. So it's like, if they do it, it's in line with their principles. And it's like, the fact that your first thing is, uh, well, they do it too. And it's like, your first thing is just to kind of be like, make an equivalency, but you got to think about the context. Like, they're doing what they're supposed to do, you know? So I don't get mad about about that. You know, they're, they're being true to themselves. You should hold yourself to a higher standard as a liberal or a progressive or a radical than than them, you know? Like, you shouldn't just look for your first out for yourself. And, but then the second thing is, when they do do it, chances are they're actually right that the, that the company believes it. Like, when um, they're celebrating like for example, if they were to um, respond to Nestle's, if Nestle pandered to them, and they responded, and then they found out that they were doing child slave labor overseas, they'd be like, "Hell, hell yeah, I like that." You know, like like the fucked up things that corporations do, they're actually okay with, so they're not being hypocrites. But the second thing is, those companies that they like, like that Black Rifle Coffee. Have you guys ever seen the Black Rifle Coffee thing? Yeah. Yeah. I have no doubt those people are true believers. They're true believers. It's not like a fake bullshit pandering. Like, you know, uh, the chances are that the things that pander to them that they like, first off, will actually be small and upstart. It's not going to be like a Fortune 500 thing. Right. And the second thing is, most of the time, I think they really do um, espouse their, their values. And I, and I think that not caring about access like, like they're not caring if they get a job at time warner they don't expect to they don't care about pitching a show to hbo max they're gonna crowdfund it you know i i think there's a weird uh thing happening where things are getting weirdly inverted this just uh this reminds me when you're talking about the uh the black rifle coffee thing uh speaking earlier about the comic state thing it reminded me that um a lot of actors when they uh, step out of line in like a TV show and like they they run into some social media trouble, um, someone like Gina Carano is a good example. The minute the sort of like cat is out of the bag type of thing, and like uh, you know they they're finally struck from whatever show or film they were in, and like uh, their Twitter account is deleted or whatever, they always have this like safety net of like Republican, like conservative, like television pundit thing to fall back on. Where like all of a sudden it was like, was this the plan the whole time? 
Like, <laughs> were you always sort of planning to just like become as famous as humanly possible, say what you want to say, and then fall back on this career of like someone who appears on Fox News once every two months and isn't like a director VHS like <laughs> film like once every two years. Um, I, I often wonder if like a lot of these people they know that like when things go wrong they can easily fall back on a career fueled by hate instead of a career fueled by Hollywood. You know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Gina Carano because it's it's kind of a perfect example, right? Where you know she okay, so she's like kind of a reactionary like her. Her reactionary viewpoints are kind of just like stupid reactionary viewpoints for, for, for the most part. Like she kind of just has like like Facebook mom viewpoints. I, I, I feel like she, she she doesn't even seem like someone who's like a like a well considered you know like far right person. She just kind of seems to have you know the the kind of typical reactionary weird viewpoints that you get in any like neighborhood Facebook group. Um, cl- clearly, Disney knew you know about her viewpoints and political stance for a long time. Um, they didn't fire her over that. They fired her because she couldn't keep her mouth shut. Um, so it's it, it's funny, of course, that you know, like the the kind of more liberal Disney fans look at that and and still want to applaud the company for firing her. We're like, well, no, like if the company actually cared, they would have fired her, you know, months or years ago. They only fired her because she was causing a problem for their bottom line. Um, one and the the other thing is to go back to something that that T said about people looking at um, actually. It may have been Q. I, I, I apologize. I, I, I lost track of who was talking. Um, was talking about uh, kind of like how like the levers of power are broken. Um, you know, the at, at least corporations are at, uh, in in some ways um, beholden to somebody. Where you know, if if you breach your fiduciary duty, you know, it is written down that if you go against the interests of the shareholders, you are probably violating state and possibly even federal law, and you, and you could be held responsible. Whereas a politician can just kind of do whatever they want, like, you know, once they're in office. Um, so it's it's both kind of understandable in that the, the the actions of corporations are at least rational within the viewpoint of a corporation, but but also kind of doubly pathetic, whereas like it's literally written down where a corporation, at least a public one, just doesn't, you know, ca- cannot care what you think if you're not a shareholder. Literally, they're legally held to only care about what shareholders think. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I would like to go to Andy because he's been very patient in the queue. But also, uh, please, other people, if you have thoughts, feel free to hop up. Uh, we'll be more attentive to the queue in the in the future. But yeah, by all means, Andy, uh, let her rip. Hey, uh, yeah, I just wanted to hop in again. Because, um, uh, well, first of all, way back, you guys just mentioned offhandedly about people you know, kind of indignantly saying they didn't read things. And I was actually thinking about, and and you mentioned the Chappelle thing, and I was thinking about, T, when you were on Bad Faith and the other person on the panel did that. And and at the time, it was really, it it really, it kind of like, a light kind of went off my head with something about like kind of like lib thinking, because it's like, you know, Dave Chappelle, for whatever you think about him, he's really popular, you know, like similar to Joe Rogan or whatever, like he's really popular. So if he is making what you believe to be anti-trans, like if you really care about the plight of trans people, and then there's a really popular person who is remaining popular, like the stuff that he's saying isn't 
turning people completely off of him. Do you know what I mean? Wouldn't you want to watch it and see like what he's doing and to adequately combat it? Do you know what I mean? Like it seems like such a weird oh, yeah. thing. And and I feel similarly about I, I actually really like Neil Young's music a lot and stuff. And uh like similarly with Joe Rogan, it's like if Joe Rogan is saying, I mean, I guess he's like upset about like anti-vax shit, which like I don't know, like whatever. But um, it's like if you really feel like he's doing this thing is so bad, like wouldn't you want to like actually engage with it and say? And, and I, a lot of my, like my mutuals on on social media and stuff, even kind of more left people that I'm friends with, we're all like, you know, yeah, like way to go, Neil Young, like get get Joe Rogan. And like, it's like, dude, Joe Rogan is so dumb. Like he's the <laughs> dumbest guy. So it's like, if this is the, the like avatar for like this thing that, that you think is so destructive and it's this guy that's just like unbelievably dumb and, and not able to really persuade, like it's not, I, it, it just seems really strange to me that it's like, you're, you're so excited and you're so angry about this thing that like, but then, and I, I wasn't really trying to interrogate people, but I, I was kind of curious to say, well, like, what are these specific things that Joe Rogan is saying that you find, like, so reprehensible or so dangerous? And how is he saying them in this way that you still have, you know, I, I read somewhere, I think maybe it was Glenn Greenwald or somebody, you know, but it's like 10 million people or something listen to that podcast. And, and the guy's just like a total dummy and will say the completely opposite thing depending on who, like, you know, Cor- Cornell West will be on there. And then Joe Rogan will kind of sound like a lefty. And then like Jordan Peterson will be on there. And then he'll kind of sound like a rat. He's just a dummy. You know what I mean? Like, he's just, it's crazy. Uh, well, 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 Joe Rogan, I think a big thing with him, I don't know how much of it is, it's not quite dumbness so much as credulousness, as in everything. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, I mean, I, it's related to dumbness, but it's a very specific type where what they like about it is every single thing blows his mind. Like, whoa, really? And it, it's just like whatever the last thing <laughs> to okay, get into his head is. Okay, but all the fucking blows mind, mind, then anything remotely says is going to sound like the most mind-blowing thing that you've ever heard. I, I will say like one thing about about Joe Rogan. Like I thought about this a tiny little bit, and the one thing I think about Joe Rogan is he isn't. He has no ideological grounding at all. So he doesn't like if somebody starts telling him something about like economics or about the poor or something, he can't say, "Oh wait, but like this is how I think about economics," and that doesn't comport he with has that. You know what I mean? Ability like ability to synthesize information. Every everything in his is. I don't know how you have a, a head that big. Nothing <laughs> going on inside it. I mean, but he's, he's like a normal just, guy. Like I think a, a lot of people are like that. Google searches is all it is. <laughs> it's like, he, oh, is that true? Pull that up on the screen, Jamie. I want to see that. And it's like, and whatever Jamie pulled up last episode doesn't exist unless it has to do with vaccines or. Um, uh, uh, chimpanzee videos. That's pretty much it. <laughs> he, he lacks. <laughs> He lacks if it's, if it's a, if it's a chimpanzee, like if it's a if it's a, uh, a group of chimpanzees, just straight fucking up some other wild animal, he he'll remember that, right? But if it's like anything to do remotely with like politics or economics or socioeconomics or what, like, it, it it doesn't exist for him. But the thing is, the episode which and I watched the whole thing, the episode with Jordan Peterson, I think, kind of highlights both of their shortcomings, which is that Jordan Peterson is also of fucking idiot just yeah, totally so 
Stupid. He he compared like to... trans with the satanic panic. Did you see yeah. that part? And he said yeah. it went back. He said it went back hundreds of years. Like he said that like mass hysteria goes back hundred like five hundred years know, or the, the study. Funny... And it's like you didn't even have psychology five hundred years ago. What are you talking about? And, but Joe about Rogan their... can't yeah. say that. Well, the, 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 sorry. Okay, I'll here's show. the thing about no, no. It's all it's all good. You're making <laughs> some really good points. Um. If you're gonna interrupt me, like make good points like that one. Oh yeah, um, sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. I appreciate it. When you um, when you are trained in Jungian psychology or psychology, the least you could ask for if you're going to become that big of a name is to be like an expert in Jungian psychology. And the problem is, not one single person I know who teaches psychology and. I mean, I don't know a lot of people that uh, are consider themselves Jungians, but they've read enough Jung to be able to have a, a fairly good handle on his over and uh, his 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 frameworks. And not a single one of them has said, "Oh yeah, this is somebody who's like a leader in the field." All of them are like, "This guy's a fucking idiot." And on anything that's outside of his area of professional expertise, which is supposed to be Jungian psychology, he doesn't make any fucking sense. Slavoj Zizek rolled up, and I was—I remember this because I was there. I was at the Zizek versus Peterson debate. Slavoj Zizek showed up to the—he was—he was drunk off his ass. Like I, I, <laughs> my man was halfway into a bottle of Stoli before coming out on that stage, which he had had probably on the stage. I mean, the dude slurred his way through uh, an introductory section, and. Gave Peterson like a couple of like light little love taps. Peterson's opening argument made no. Not only did it make no sense, he admitted during his opening argument that he hadn't read the Communist Manifesto in like twenty years or something. But that was what he was basing his opening argument on: was his day before reading of the Communist Manifesto, as if all Marxism is reducible to a twenty-page pamphlet. <laughs> like, bro, you're a university professor. You're supposed to be good at reading things. You knew this debate was coming up for months, and it didn't occur to you to read any Marxist theory. You read this 20 page, and he didn't seem to really understand what was being said in the pamphlet. He got so he was talking about uh, dictatorship of the proletariat. He was talking about means of production, this, that, and the third. And it's like half of that stuff was barely even mentioned in in the uh, the manifesto. So I know that you're just like it's all hearsay. And then he was talking about postmodernism. I was like, but Marxism and postmodernism <laughs> are completely incompatible concepts. <laughs> there is no fucking Marxist out there that believes in postmodernism. It's like nobody, people caught that during the debate. And I, I would have thought that Zizek would have absolutely just annihilated him. Zizek didn't do that. He was actually very nice with him, but he did one thing which should have ended Peterson's career as a grifter, which was okay, so you keep talking about. All these like um, Marxist professors, this like this uh, this this growing threat of Marxism in in the academy. Who are you talking about? Can you name any? Peterson couldn't name one. Zizek <laughs> had to name people for him. This is how bad that was. So he, but he will then go on Joe Rogan's show. Rogan doesn't know anything about anything. He's again huge head with no thoughts rattling around inside of it. And Peterson will say dumb shit like that, like. Climate uh, climate science doesn't work because they're working with finite models and therefore it's synonymous with everything. 
And Rogan, who doesn't know what uh, scientific modeling is supposed to look like or what data modeling is supposed to look like, doesn't know that you have to work with a finite number of frameworks or variables. So he's not smart enough to say, but that, 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 that's how that sort of testing works. Peterson then just gets away. So it's like, it's like, I'm trying to think of a less vulgar way to say this, but I don't think I can. Imagine, um, imagine the dumbest person you know jizzing into Peterson's mouth and then him and Morgan snowball the jizz back into <laughs> That's all that conversation was. So P- Peterson is, is, is kind of remarkable to me because he, um, so, so. Uh, folklore studies is like a personal obsession of mine. It was something I got into um, when I was uh, in an anthropology program in, in college. And it's remarkable that um, Peterson talks extensively about folklore history and uses folklore extensively when he's talking about, you know, like maps of meaning and, and like kind of the way that we, we perceive stories. He, he, he knows absolutely nothing about the, the discipline of folklore studies. Like he, I, I have never once heard him, allude to a knowledge of like the historical development of different folk tales like he he literally has no intellectual curiosity about it and it's something that i i I see a lot with kind of people on that kind of like that kind of like right-wing public intellectual side uh, along the lines of like uh, stephen pinker or like michael gladwell like they they have no knowledge of the social science discipline that they brush up against They, they 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 feel like they could just kind of um, like shoulder their way through from from first uh, principles, and, and like they they've just never done the reading. It's, it's really remarkable. The, the <laughs> and they also and, and they also lie, and, and they also lie. Stephen oh, yeah. Pinker just straight straight up lies. Uh, the 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 other thing, real quick. Um, I think the caller's name was was Andy. I, I apologize. Uh, you you mentioned originally kind of like people people being proud of not having done done the reading. Um, so something I've noticed is that to liberals, um, media consumption is praxis. Right. Like if you consume good media, if you consume good, quote unquote, the right books, that is political progress. If you consume the wrong ones, that's political like decay. That's like degeneracy. So they're proud of not reading or not watching the bad thing because they're only consuming pure media. And again, this is why I I, I, I want to echo T that I, I wish that uh, Raquel were, were here because um, this is something that she goes she, she talks a lot about is is like that. That becomes a substitute for actual political action is consuming stuff that is, you know, politically correct. I hate to say politically correct, but it's literally politically correct. Yeah. And people should check out Raquel's podcast, Right Good, and the episode on Squeakor, because what she talks about on Squeakor is exactly what we talk about a lot in the show. And I so wish her audio was able to work out because uh, she has a lot of good thoughts about this. But um, to add to what Andy said, and by the way, Andy... Um, you know, I just move you to the audience just to keep it uh, moving. But with anybody that we move to the audience, it's just to give the other person a chance to speak. But everyone's always welcome to come back up into the queue. It's not a sign that you should, you know, n- not come back or anything personal. It's just something that we do. But Andy said something that was pretty good, right? With the, with that whole thing about when I was on Bad Faith and the professor, uh, Stephen Thrasher, admitted not reading the book. And I had watched the Dave Chappelle special, right? But then I'm really anal about this stuff. I went and hunted down the transcript and I printed out the transcript. So I made like all these highlights in the transcript and I'm like, um, I want to really know this stuff inside out because I'm going up against like a um, professor and he's going to like really uh, know his stuff. And the first thing he announced was 
Yeah, so I didn't watch the special. But he said it like proudly. Like I didn't watch it. And one thing that was interesting, right? I think with a lot of um, people in this kind of BuzzFeedified, Tumblrified media is Tumblr is a place where everything is violent. If you do something on Tumblr and it hurts somebody's feelings of the community, then you are now like an evil person and everything has to be a f- affirmation and validation. And BuzzFeed, I think from a different, comes to the same conclusion from a different direction for corporate reasons. As in, we want to maximize hits. We want to maximize clicks. We want to get, um, you know, everybody in the same page. So we're going to be as saccharine and non um, offensive as possible. But when both ethos is merged together, I feel like all the media now is aimed at affirming and validating, you know, and they sound like repet- like redundant words, but like um, the way that I read it and understood it uh, when I researched it is like affirmation is like, I'm supporting you for what you believe or what you think or how you act or, you know, certain things. Validation is I support you for like what you are, like no matter what you do. So for example, if you're like black, white, trans, uh, cis, straight, gay, you're automatically good just because of what you are, even before you do anything. And everything now, I feel like in modern academia, in modern, um, writing is geared toward that so then the biggest crime you can ever do is invalidate or disaffirm somebody so if you look at the things that these people even always complain about all the time when you're talking to them if you disagree with them they say that's violence and to them that really is violence because you're not affirming them or or something like gaslighting like they always say you're gaslighting me you know and gaslighting is the ultimate form of uh invalidation so if your whole existence is i have to be constantly affirmed and validated minute to minute then if you're not affirming them if not validating them like they're feeling psychically annihilated you know and i think that's kind of like where it comes from everything is this life and death risk of psychic annihilation if they're not constantly affirmed and validated like minute to minute to me and that's that's how, that's how it reads to me and i think when it becomes that way the person that you're up against who is invalidating you or disaffirming you just by saying something you don't like they're actually psychically annihilating you and that makes them evil like anybody who wants to annihilate somebody else is an evil person uh whether it's figuratively or Literally, so I think what kind of happens to these people and their arguing skills, first off, when you're on social media and you deal with these people, they're always instantly blocking you, muting you, getting upset. They'll do this thing where they'll actually get block lists. Like what they'll do is one of their friends will have like 100 people blocked and they'll be like, hey, can you give me your block list so I can just block the 100 people <laughs> that that you have blocked just in case. One of them might accidentally disaffirm me or invalidate me. Like that's how like fragile they are. So they create these filter bubbles and echo chambers where they never have to deal with a contrary thought or anybody that will press them and make them have to defend their uh, stance. So I think they get like a they get they get to start feeling smarter than they are, right? 
because they've actually preemptively blocked anybody that can have a good argument against them. They'll even block the bad arguments, um, you know, and then what kind of happens is in that circle, when everyone thinks the same and is just as fragile, in his circles, he probably gets applauded, you know, when he says, hey, I didn't watch this thing, kind of like what Kurt was saying, like the value is what you consume and don't consume is, um, you know, a good testament to how good a person you are. So he's probably used to going to spaces where he announces, by the way, guys, I didn't watch that bad thing. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, go <laughs> you. So when he did it in the bad faith space, that's all anybody talks about in the comments. That's all anybody cared about. Uh, I had like all these good points I thought I had ready, and nobody cared about them. That's all uh, anybody. But it makes sense that people would care about that. But if you lose your grounding in the real world, you start ending up in this bizarre world where it actually takes you off guard that people actually want you to watch what you claim to be an expert on. Because the articles that these people commissioned to write, the editors don't care if they read it. I actually saw articles that were actually commissioned and printed where in the first paragraph of the article, the person admits they didn't read the damn thing. And so it's like your editors aren't asking you to do it. In academia, nobody's asking you to do it. They're all cheering you if you say you don't do it, and then you actually end up in this bizarre world with its own values, and the minute you step out of it, you look crazy. You know? And I really think they think anybody who makes them feel bad at any given point is really like a Hitler. And it kind of makes sense then why they write and talk the way they do, because if you were gonna do a hit piece on Hitler, is anybody really gonna say, well, did you read Mein Kampf? You know? Uh, <laughs> it's Hitler. Everybody knows that's the most evil shit on the planet. And they really think that other people see their opponents as evil as they do, such that, you know, you know, it's like a Hitler hit piece. Like, you know, oh, no one's going to actually ask me to make a good point and research about uh, Dave Chappelle because they're going to see as clearly as I do that he's a modern anti-trans Hitler. And, yeah, I mean, that's all I have to say. I think uh, I think what you're referring to, like uh, when people like uh, share like block lists and stuff on like Twitter, uh, that's a classic thing. A lot of me and my friends talk about. Um, we we have this saying. We always refer to Twitter as an echo chamber, and um, people like they they specialize their like follower list and like they block who they want and like they make sure that everything they say, they're saying it to someone who already agrees with the point before they've made it. Um, whilst I think like uh, a lot of people on Twitter that sort of have this rep that like live in echo chambers and like only talk about the things that they agree with, I think that's uh, stereotypically something that, like, the more, like, liberal side is accused for. But, um, my God, I think, like, the uh, the more conservative, like, right-wing side is so much worse for it. The fact that, like, they make their own apps. Like, what was that one? <laughs> oh, was, yeah, What was sure. the Trump one? Parler? Was that it? And, like, they there just receded into gab. it. There was Gab, yeah. too. Yeah, But you know one thing that's different, though, and this was brought up in the beginning, they need the echo chambers, but like what was brought up earlier, when they hate something, they will read it to like the last word just to rant against it. And But they'll rant, it, they'll rant against it within their echo chamber, 
but it's like um hey, who's who's they and uh like the blue check driver type people the social justice oh no people. no i'm talking about earlier when kurt was talking about how oh the, okay, okay 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 those pe- those people from that uh hacker news uh libertarian yeah, site yeah, yeah. they will actually read the articles they'll be wrong about it about what it means but yeah i notice all the time like a lot of these reactionary people they do have this thing where they actually hunt down contrary opinions just to argue against them bad, badly so <laughs> i agree I, I, I agree with um i agree what you're saying saying lewis that they are worse in their own ways but i do think they at least will read the things where i notice a lot of times with um some of these liberals they will just see a title sometimes of something i write and then they'll, they'll cancel they'll cancel me without even like clicking the thing that i that i tweeted you know so it's very weird thing so i think you're right but i also think there's something different as well so i i, I, I think mean, the li- difference liberals... is like um sorry go on yeah oh i, I, I was gonna say li- liberals think though that that twitter will become that space for them or that facebook will become that space for them like they actually believe that a company like twitter you know will become this like progressive space that will block all the people that they disagree with. You know, if, if anything, conservatives are realistic about the fact that that's never going to happen. And so they actually do set out to create their own space. Like the reason that progressives don't do that is because they genuinely believe that they can convince these companies to become, you know, progressive actors for them, which if, if anything is, is kind of more naive. So, 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 so you're saying in a way, do you think Twitter is already their gab? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, it, it's like, how what was it? Uh, I think it was um, uh, I, I think it was Kamala Harris who who like brought up in one of the debates that like she would she would call on Twitter to to to, to ban Donald, Donald Trump. Trump's account. Yeah. Which they ended up doing anyway. So Which like, they did end up doing. Yeah. Yeah. For that and they, yeah. But I, I, I think that it kind of because Tina, I've talked about this. I like the importance of um, having I hate using the word spaces. But I don't know what word there is to use. No, because these people have fucking ruined like entire words in the English language. But um, like there would be spaces like the Phil Donahue show where you would have like reactionary far right politicians and like the Nation of Islam go at it, or like Sister Soldier and Cornell West would hash out their differences. And you don't really have places for that now. Like you don't have places where people can like go into like smart people who know their shit have read or watched uh whether it's like political info or cultural info or whatever but like they've read or watched or listened to things synthesized ideas about them compared them to what came earlier had some ideas about how how things will proceed if they go down current trajectories and have smart things to say about it like you don't really have those places where people who believe one idea can have a conversation with people who believe another idea and let the audience decide. I'm not really talking about debates. I'm just talking about like having informed conversations about things. It doesn't really exist anymore. And now the problem is that I think there's like, like I I I think there are actually only, for example, three movie reviewers left in the world. Everybody else is auditioning for a gig at Warner Brothers or wherever. Like, they're trying to find an agent, and they're trying to find a corporate gig. 
like that's what the movie review industry has become is an audition to work in the movie industry. And I think there's only three actual viewers left in the world. That would be John Semley. Um, uh, oh my God. How the hell am I going to forget? Armand White. I was just going to say, so John Semley, Barry Hertz, and Armand White. That's yeah. it. Like, I, can't, I can't think of anybody else that actually does the hard work of reviewing movies. John Mark Commode. Mark Commode. You guys, you guys don't get Mark Commode in the States? No. I'm going to check him out. I'm actually offended by that revelation. Oh, no, no. I'll go, I'll go check this out. I'm actually, no, I'm, lo- I'm looking for people that, like, have. Not, not, okay, people think that criticism is critique. And when I say critique, I don't just mean people who are willing to tear apart movies. I'm talking about people that will actually analyze movies. We'll talk about, hey, here are some of the good things that this movie did. Here are some of the terrible things this movie did. Here's how this movie compares to others in its genre or have utilized the tropes that it's used before. How effective is it when measured against them? You don't really have that now. But 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 here's here's another here's another example of what you're saying, right? And then after this, I was gonna uh, go to Hirotsu. Um Like I don't watch Marvel stuff after Endgame. Like I was dragged to see Endgame. I was burnt out on Marvel stuff even before Endgame. But um, for whatever reason, my uh, wife just wanted to see the Avengers movies. I'm like, why do you even want to see this? You never want to see this stuff. But I think they got so big, she just wanted to see what it was. So we went, and she didn't really understand what was like, you know, happening because she didn't watch all the other movies and stuff. And um, I got like really burnt out. There was too much spectacle on the screen and too much clanging. I was like, I, I just can't take this stuff anymore. You have to remember, you're not a normie, so like, you, you consume a lot of material and um, like middle middle brow material that carries itself as highfalutin is incredibly exhausting. If yeah, you are also consuming like low brow and high brow material, but for regular people who are just like watching This Is Us in the evening time and watching the occasional movie in the theater. It's not like I, I don't think they can really relate to the way that we consume content. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's probably there's probably that too. Um, it's um, but, it's funny you say yeah. that, here because mm-hmm. um, yeah, what you said about like the way we consume content, it got, it got me thinking about like uh, your point that like that there aren't so many movie reviews anymore, and I genuinely think uh, the medium in which people review movies is now best found on YouTube. Like, I think video essayists are the, like, number one source of that. And back in the day, it used to be, like, you'd hear a movie review on the radio or it would be in between adverts when you're watching something on the television or, I don't know, if you're if you're really lucky, you'd see it, like, uh, like printed in, like, newspapers. But, like, Nowadays, I, I think no, it's I completely mean, moved away from that. I think there, I think the newspaper, and I think every major paper had a movie reviewer that would make a name by being well informed and hmm. ruthlessly critical of whatever movie. Even if they absolutely loved it, they would not be afraid to point out the shortcomings of the movie. So, like a lot of people point to like Siskel and Ebert. I, I think Dean Siskel was actually a, a huge hack. Um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> agree 
I actually, yeah, I kind of agree. Yeah, no, he was just, like he, him, him hitching his wagon to Roger Ebert was the best career move he ever made, and I think he he died before people caught on to the fact that he was a hack. Um, and then Roger Ebert, I think because he released that book, Your Movie Sucks, people think that he was a lot harder on movies than he actually was. When in fact, he liked that Ben Affleck, Jennifer, um, Jennifer Lopez movie, Gili. Like he, he really oh, yeah. Liked. His yeah. movie yeah. opinions are bad. He's a great writer, but his movie opinions are like yeah, often very yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. But the thing was, he was not afraid to like, you know, to, to ruthlessly critique a movie. But then you had people like, you had like Eugene Shalitz, you had like, um, Oh my god! There's like a bunch of names swirling around in my head that I have first names and last names, and if I put them together, they're going to be like mismatched. But what I'm saying is that like the Washington Post had their reviewer, the Chicago Sun Times had theirs, the New York Times had theirs. You know, even like the Toronto Star, like in in Canada, like the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail had solid reviewers. And I think that that's all gone the way of the dinosaur because people aren't reading movie reviews to find out what's good and not good about a movie, they're reading movie reviews to validate the decision to go and watch the movie that they already want to watch. They just want to be agreed with. They don't want to hear, like, they don't actually want to, like, hear what's actually, what could be improved about this movie. And that's translated, actually, translated. I should say that it has come, like, I think it germinated in Tumblr and, and young adult fiction, where people would read um, reviews from people that were also trying to be YA writers. So they're all like trying to be all like chummy and buddy buddy with each other. And if you like yeah. a certain piece of YA fiction, then you were being like racist or ableist or whatever the fuck because. Like, but that person might not put you on later. Yeah, Cause, yeah, like, cause like, like, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Uh, Damon Lindelof hires a bunch of his recappers. Uh, to be his writers, a lot of his right. uh, writers and watchmen were his recappers. There was this woman that was regularly recapping and praising um, in the show Insecure. I think it was Ashley Ray or something, and she was a blue check that was always uh, raving and writing fawning things about. And now she's managed by the same manager as uh, Issa Rae. Um, what's her name? Chrissy Teigen. Um, somebody did a profile. Do you guys know about this story? Someone did a profile. Yeah, this lady did a profile Teigen. on her, and even before the profile was released, she had already been hired. <laughs> yeah, it was a fa- it was a phonic profile. I and mean, Chrissy Teigen hired this girl to be, um, to be the runner of her version of Goop. She was trying to do her own version of lifestyle thing, like on Gwyneth Paltrow. And and like, like you said, even before the piece came out, so that means that. This girl probably ran it by Chrissy Teigen, and it was so yeah. fawning that even before it came out, she already knew it was going to be so good. And then she, without even having the sense of shame, she tweeted, Hey, guys, good news. Um, this piece that I wrote um, got me hired for this thing. And then <laughs> half the people were like, uh, that's not a good thing. But what was interesting to me wasn't so much that she lacked the self-awareness to be ashamed of it, but that half the replies were like, you go, girl. This is great. And then a lot of these other like blue checks who were women and, and POC were, were getting mad at the people who were critiquing her. They're like, white people do it all the time. And now you're just mad that a, a person of color, a woman of color, is now um, benefiting from cronyism. And I was like, oh, my God, we are so far gone. You're not supposed to admit gone. that. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they got they got they got upset. They got really upset. And um, the point that I was making about the uh, Marvel Endgame stuff is actually ties into Q's point about reviews, right? Uh, it was way too big and clanging, and I'm like, I don't really want to watch any more Marvel stuff. I'm burnt out. But if, it, if they ever do something nice and quiet, I might try it again. Something like more grounded or whatever. So whenever those Disney Plus shows came out, I would just be curious and look for a review. And I'd just be curious, like, okay, is this going to be the one that's more grounded? Like, I wanted something more like that Winter Soldier movie. I thought that was kind of a cool movie, like, you know, that Bucky movie. And I started realizing how bad reviews are and this is, goes to like the whole Tumblrization thing, where it's like a fan page. Like, yeah. you read a review, and there's no talk about themes. There's no talk about characters, but they talk about the show as if human beings didn't write it, and actors aren't acting. They act like these are their friends, and they're gossiping about them, and that these are like real people. And they talk about the characters like they're people, not a character that a screenwriter actually made conscious choices about. And they don't mention the screenwriter's names or anything to the point that I think they don't even know or care about who actually creates the thing. They just act like they're catching with old friends. And one example, right, uh, IndieWire had this thing about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I was curious. I'm like, I want to know if this show handles race well. I don't want to waste like eight hours of my life watching a bad show. So let me try this review. And it says, the Falcon and Winter Soldier review Episode four proves it's still all about Steve. And in parentheses, Rogers, right? And this guy writes this thing, and it's on IndieWire. And he goes on, and he's talking like these are his friends, and he's using everybody's first name for the characters. So he's just saying stuff like, uh, Steve Rogers, the Jack Pearson of superheroes, was unflinchingly perfect. If he saw a situation pointed south, as in Captain America Civil War, he couldn't ignore it. It's what led to his dissatisfaction with the stars and stripes and his crossing of a patriotic Maginot line. De facto leader of the Flag Smashers, Carly Morgenthau, finds himself in a very similar position. The world of the MC post-blip is awful and unfortunately sounds a lot like our world, with income inequality growing more cavernous and government aid less reliable. During a mission to retrieve the rest of the Super Soldier Serum, she and the other Flag Smashers stole from the power broker. Carly and one of her acolytes have a long conversation about Captain America, where her followers suggest she could be the new Cap as, quote, a leader who looks like them, who understands their, their pain. I'm like, wait, is this a recap or is this a review? <laughs> like, what is going on? But he, he's, he's, he's not explaining who anybody is. He's acting like uh, this is the Tumblr fan blog and you've read every other installment and you're just jumping in. You know, and like this should be a standalone review that explains this as if I've never seen a Marvel movie. Tells me who wrote the thing, what you know these characters are, and the whole thing just goes on. Like I'll just pick another paragraph. Zemo, no fan of super soldiers, is quick to remind Bucky and Sam. Like he's talking about these people like they're his friends. That an, <laughs> as awesome that as someone who was willing to take the super soldier serum, Cardi is a supremacist on a radicalized path. You know when Bucky states. The serum never corrupted Steve. Zemo responds, touche. But there has never been another Steve Rogers, has there? And it's just like very gossipy and very weird or very much like it's written for a fan blog, not a review. And every review I was finding to try to just catch up on this one dumb show, 
I could not find one that would just, you know, review the damn thing like a normal person. Two two points about this. One, um, I, I think it was I, I, I think Lewis said earlier that he was he was kind of uh, a bit immersed in that that like MFA world. Um, writers talk about their characters in those terms too, as if they're not characters that they're writing, or they'll say something like, "I was so surprised that this character that I made up did this." in the story or that it came to me that the character would do this in the story. It's this weird, like they, they almost have like a parasocial relationship with like a cat, like, like a person that they They're made all up. Characters. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing is um, to, to go back to something that uh, Q said a bit ago um, uh, about the, the function of reviews. Um, it's something that I think about a lot. Um, and, and Q, you said something re- re- really good about how it's almost like people, um, it's almost like people read the reviews to feel validated in their interest in watching something. I would even go a step further and say that a lot of people read reviews to feel validated in the opinions that they had after having themselves watched the thing. Like they, yeah. they will go and watch the movie and then go read reviews and be like, Oh good. I felt the right thing. I had the correct yeah. response to that. <laughs> yeah. no, that's, I, mean, I want to go one step further. I think myself. they do it to validate the feeling they had before they watched the thing. They know they're gonna love it before they even watch it. No, okay, I w- okay. For, like I will say that I have definitely read movie reviews after I've seen a thing, but I do that because I want to know. Hey, is there is there something that I missed? Like I really like this movie, but in my liking the movie, is there something that I overlooked, or did I have like a thing that like I I could I felt a bad feeling, but I couldn't quite place what it was. Maybe if I go read some reviews, somebody else has felt that bad feeling and can actually put words to it. And I'll find, like, very rarely will somebody actually do the heavy lifting to uh, demonstrate exactly what that shared bad feeling was. So, like, if I if I go in and look at John Samley's review for The Infinity War, um, okay, here's, here's what he says. Uh... Uh, okay. Um, combining the power of the prize jewels called Infinity Stones, the thick neck Thanos exterminates 50% of life everywhere across planets and star systems. It's a despairing bit of genocidal peacocking driven by that most desperate motivation, love. A less eager suitor may settle on concert tickets or a dozen red roses, but to woo death herself, Thanos delivers the decimated corpses of half the galaxy to her feet. So this is when he's talking about like the original um, Infinity Stone saga uh, in in the comics, it's equal parts tragic, monstrous, and sort of sweet. A cross between Antony and Cleopatra, style Shakespearean tragedy, and a John Hughesian doe-eyed romance that reveals the preposterousness and exorbitant stupidity that enliven the best superhero comics. The comic entity Mistress Death is absent in Avengers: Infinity War, um, the mega-budgeted Marvel Cinematic Universe blockbuster event. In scare quotes, that draws together a decade of world-building and complicated franchise arrangements. Instead, Thanos uh, is motivated by more purely Malthusian ends. His aim is to collect the stones, which have been scattered across Marvel Studios' existing superhero franchise films, in order to decimate the galactic populace. His aim is balanced. He is, is, in his word, dispassionate. His madness is utterly, boringly conventional. Um, And then he says later on, Critics tasked with reviewing Infinity War were explicitly asked to not give away who dies and who doesn't out of respect for the filmmakers of these films and their legions of worldwide fans. To the last point, the manner in which studio financiers weaponize fans as a bulwark against critical volleys is truly pathetic. And I'm like, thank you. 
Yeah, Somebody, that's somebody good. That's fucking great. said it. Holy shit. Why did it take... So, um, in... I saw I saw this begin to happen with Iron Man, in that people, uh, when they would review the films, would give away some plot details, and they would even say because this was like during like the the Mad Men era, right? So they would say things like spoilers abound, yada yada, and people I think read those reviews, knowing that there would be spoilers ahead, and occasionally they would gripe about it on social media, but now we've gotten to a point where people will warn that there are spoilers in their movie reviews and then people will still bitch about it. Like they'll be so upset. Like how dare you, like how dare you, you detract from a movie going experience. It's like, but I said, there's going to be spoilers ahead. <laughs> yes, but you shouldn't reveal anything about this. Now to the point where like people have literally said that if you, in your movie review, spoil plot details, the studio should be able to sue you out of every penny you have. And it's like, when did, even if when you announce, even if you announce, you're gonna spoil it. Yes. When did That's this crazy. Shit get so fucking bizarre. Like it's a movie. They act like it's it's like some sort of like transcendent life event. So now, like, so, so what John pointed uh, to in 2018 mm-hmm. has utterly come true, which is that the fans are now a, as he says, a bulwark against criticism, because if you if you don't want to deal with people, uh dogpiling you for days on end about a movie that you didn't like you just you have to like uh give it a soft-footed treatment and the way that i know this is true is i've seen people do book reviews this way too not the not spoiling uh spoiling parts of the plot but they'll do this really weird thing that you can hear them preemptively defending themselves against people that are going to be mad for the criticism Mm. they're going to make they'll say Okay, I saw this in, I think it was like a slate review of Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. Um, I forget what the hell it was called. It was it was that bad. Um, but, between, the wor- between the World and no, Me or no, no, Water no, no. Dancer? His fiction book. His first fiction book. Water Dancer? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, a reviewer for, I want to I say it was Slate, uh, made a criticism of the book. And when she made that specific criticism, she said, you know, it did so and so and so, and that's okay with an ex- like literally with an exclamation mark at the end of the sentence. So it's like you have to let people down so gently who are reading the review that you point out a part of the book that you found a little bit trite or hackneyed, and you say, "Oh, but that's okay. Like it's okay to do this in books. Like it happens all the time." With an exclamation mark on it, like I'm I'm really trying not to be attacked right now. And it's like how how cowardly are people right now that they can't even voice their profession like if you have the knowledge and you have a background of information like you have a repository of info based on all the books that you've read and reviewed and so forth you should be able to compare what you've just read against all of the other works that you are aware of or that you have analyzed and come to a conclusion and now people are afraid to do that Q, I, you, you said uh, earlier, as if these things were transcendent life events. Uh, I think the reality is that for a lot of people, these these are transcendent life events. They are almost equivalent to like the birth of a child. They have been following, <laughs> you know, the journey of these movies to, uh, you know, uh, creation over like two years. They've been, you know, reading all the blogs. They've been following all like all the PR. It is absolutely the catharsis of this like multi-year process and you know i I think that's deeply depressing but it is what it is (laughs) Uh, um kurt the reason why i said 
uh, not even to be affirmed about what they thought after seeing the movie, but before was the first time I really saw how bad a problem it was, was when the Dark Knight movie, um, the, the second Nolan movie came, was, was about to come out. This guy in New York Magazine, I think his name was David Edelstein or something. He, uh, I think that was his name. He wrote a negative review on it, and it was a very thoughtful negative uh, review. It was for, um, I believe it was for New York Magazine, not, not The New Yorker. And the movie didn't come out yet, and no one had seen the movie yet uh, among the fans. And he got, like, death threats. And the comments to the article were insane, like thousands and thousands of angry, rabid um, FU comments. But these people all admitted they had not seen the damn thing. <laughs> and I was like, and that's when I realized, like, these people making their mind that they love something before they even... Um, watch the thing but these people end up becoming the writers but they also are the modern audience so it's like the 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 people writing these views almost have to um pander pander down to them and i think again the problem of access is a consistent problem where everyone thinks if i i might be the next one to get a job i might be the next one to get picked so or or maybe maybe i won't get picked but maybe marvel will stop sending interviews to my magazine or maybe uh, I will get a swag bag or something from <laughs> from Warner but but basically it's this kind of fear of um, not getting not getting access or pissing off that kind of uh, fan because in this day of precarious media ventures who wants to have a thousand or two thousand people mad at you and not reading your stuff that's a that's a lot of clicks you could you know be getting I also want to give Dexter a chance because we waited too long to get to our last caller and he disappeared, so I want to be better about that. So, Dexter, please speak. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, Lewis knows me, actually. I uh, <laughs> write under the name Dexter Bush. Uh, I just I just realized you're here, Dex. Hey, uh, hi, Lewis. Lewis, <laughs> hey, as we used to call him. We had another Lewis in the group before Lewis came along, so he was Lewis for a very long time. <laughs> no one else is allowed to call me that. <laughs> Um, no, actually, uh, I, I've been listening for a few minutes and T made a point about access that I do things very interesting and piggybacks on what Lewis was saying as well about the landscape of criticism really has changed in a lot of ways. And the access to that criticism has changed. I mean, we are, as you guys have already said, a long way away from the days of, you know, uh, oh my God, Gene, uh, you already said his name, and now suddenly I'm spacing it in the Siskel? same way that you were. Not, not Gene Siskel, although uh, Siskel Gene and Shallot? Ebert, of course. Gene Shallot, thank you. Uh, um, but yeah, the idea of what criticism is and how respectable it is has changed a lot. And having done a podcast about comics and uh, on a very small scale, nothing very big, but there's this view, this very antagonistic view towards a lot of those YouTubers who do have criticisms and put up videos about things uh, that we are in some way not valid in our criticisms. You know, we are not educated enough. We don't have enough credentials. We don't have enough accolades to our names. And I find that to be very troubling. But that is a double-sided coin at the same time because you have a lot of these, quite frankly, chodes who have videos where they cut the heads off of Star Wars dolls or whatever and find that to be valid criticism. 
you know, I think criticism needs to be balanced. You know, we need to be able to look at the positives, the negatives, and weigh those things out. And that's something I'm not seeing across the board, whether it's in what is considered to be respected circles of journalism and criticism or in these circles of YouTubers. You know, that's a real problem. And in fact, the more salacious your criticism or critique is, the more popularity it gets because of the way that YouTube and their algorithm works. Mm-hmm. So we're in this weird position now where it's a lot better to say, you know, oh, the new Star Wars films are SJW garbage, or on the flip side of that, oh, the new Star Wars films are the boon of diversity and empowerment. And we're not really digging down and looking at the thematics, the writing, the production aspects, all of the things that actually should matter in valid criticism. Yeah, I, I always I like totally about the, agree. the materialist a- aspect real quick is um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in terms of aspect of access. Um, you know, I, I, I approve and reject pitches all the time. And if somebody comes to me with an interview and they've already got the interview lined up and they say, Hey, uh, I'll sell you this interview. I'm way more likely to accept that than if they have to, to get it. So like, you know, from, from, from a materialist standpoint, as the writer, uh, there's real value in that. And they'll shut up. <laughs> I'm, I'm extremely annoyed that one of my friends has come in here and, uh, <laughs> said such an erudite point and embarrassed me when I'm supposed to be one of the speakers, but I absolutely agree. <laughs> I, I love what you're saying, Dex, about how basically like, Everything has to be a soundbite, like the the content. Yeah, the, the content of the video or the article you're going to read can already be summed up in the title, and you already know exactly what that type of person is going to say in the video. I I cannot wait for the day that someone like the quartering is like, oh, I've actually changed my mind. Captain Captain Marvel Two was actually quite good. You know, it was quite progressive. Oh, oh, it's uh, never going to happen. Uh, it's never going to happen. Oh, 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 that man has decided he hates that before he watches it. Oh, oh yeah, I, I want to make clear uh, when I talk about that, I find myself tr- trying noxious, uh, reactionary YouTubers just to get some type of attempt at analysis. He is not one of them. He is dumb beyond you, you know belief. No <laughs> redeeming anything to that guy because all he does is just. I swear, he just watches everyone else and then just dumbs down. And then, yeah, um, mm. it and the then points makes of the worst. Criticism twice as stupid. Yeah, and, and um, T, yeah. you and I have talked about this person. Like, somebody whose uh, videos I actually really appreciate because he's, he's like, super self-effacing. Although I think some of the conclusions he comes to are kind of, like, hackneyed and it's like, all right, like, I know that you're trying to impress your anti-SJW audience, but there are moments of real clarity in his reviews is Critical Drinker, this Scottish dude that re- reviews, like, comic book movies and, like, a lot of, like, fluffy pop culture stuff. But then we'll also go back and do deep cuts, like, compare the um, the original Tomb Raider game to, like, the Renaissance, like, uh, PS3 and PS4 Tomb Raider games. Or he'll go back and, and review Avatar, um, like, the, the James Cameron Avatar, and called it, like, the... The, the highest selling bad movie of all time and he'll like he will rip these movies apart but he'll do it in a very like he knows what 
plot structure looks like. He knows what character development is supposed to look like. He knows what it he points out is. plot holes. He yeah, points out yeah, really yeah. good plot holes that, exactly. that I missed. Yeah, he'll he'll talk about like you know the way that you're supposed to set up a scene, or what the way that foreshadowing is supposed to look like is you do it like this. And he'll point to, for example, like the movie Tremors, which came out I believe in like '88, right? So I can tell he's somewhere around our age, but he remembers his stuff well enough and has gone back and watched the material well enough to make not just to say movies were better back then. But you explain exactly why, because they contain the necessary elements to make a good movie. And even though Tremors wasn't even that great a movie, I mean, it was really good, like, you know, fluffy popcorn movie. But then he'll compare it to um, Star Trek Into Darkness and then explain, like, they don't actually do foreshadowing. They just make the plot do whatever they need to make it do. And How like, dare you, sir? <laughs> not just in saying that Tremors is not a good movie. But your complete dismissal <laughs> of the masterpiece that is M. Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender. No, 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 not M. Night Shyamalan's, the James Cameron version. Oh, God. The last no, no, no. I know you mean James Cameron's avatar. Okay. But can I be the one to say, Last Airbender? Not that bad. Oh, get out of here. Thanks. Get out of here, man. There has to be the controversial thing said on this. Uh... I, I, I applaud I applaud your bravery, sir, with, with, with that one. Uh, I, um, one thing I wanted to say, I'm pretty much uh, done. I wanted to give people the chance to say the last words. And also, if any final callers want to come up, uh, this is the time to do it. But uh, one last thing I'll say before I'm done is, uh, Lewis, we found Lewis... Um, the way you found Lewis, I think, is a perfect example of the buzzfeedification and tumblrization of media in that uh, episode four, four, 414 of Champagne Sharks is about Simu uh, Liu from Shang-Chi. And there was this thing happening where these uh, Asian online feminists made Simu Liu into um, this basic... They made him into the Asian version Asian of, yeah. yeah, yeah, the Asian version of the of the men from Fury Road. Like he was just uh, enslaving women he was and one of the war chasing them down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really over the top, stupid. And all these major outlets, all they were doing was just repeating the outrageous stories verbatim <laughs> without fact checking them. They just said, and this is what the stories would be. The stories were just like, uh. So-and-so on Twitter tweeted this, and then so-and-so tweeted this. It sounds really crazy, then so-and-so tweeted this. Is this true? It's like, um, you're a fucking reporter. Why don't you tell us? <laughs> Why don't you? Why yeah, go you? look at the, Do actual research. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me when Kamala Harris like tweets something like, we need to raise awareness about this issue. It's like, bitch, you're a politician. What do you mean? Who do we raise it to? Like, like you're the one who's supposed to be... Um, who has the power to take care of this. Yeah, so Lewis was the only person who actually did the research and wrote this um, long piece documenting where the story started, how it was all made up, and just a giant game of telephone, and all the various um, conflicting interests happening that were behind it, and how it was just a bunch of uh, crap. But all the other places were just... And the second time I'm using this word, uh, first time was Joe Lewis, but I think it goes for a lot of reporting. Credulous. It's not Joe Lewis. I mean, Joe Rogan. People were being credulous and just <laughs> printing everything at uh, 
face value. They were just saying, Do you mean hey, incredulous? Um, oh, maybe I do mean incredulous. Is that what? Is that how it is? <laughs> What's the one where you just take everything at face value? Have I been messing it up this whole time? <laughs> that can no, go I, I either way. Don't... Oh, say. no, no. No, yeah, just means you believe everything you're told, right? Yeah. Okay, then I'm Yeah, yeah, I'm looking it up now. Says, right says, yeah, having or showing too great a readiness to believe things. Um, My apologies, yeah, then. I corrected the, you on something that I was wrong on. <laughs> it's, it's I'm fine, just excited fine. that the boxer Joe Lewis was the one who came up with this shit, man. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know what? I was thinking of Joe Rogan and Lewis Parker, and I combined it in my head to Joe Lewis. That's, uh, all, that's what I when I was talking. Did. That's what I almost did earlier. Uh, Neil Young said to come <laughs> after me, man. Don't say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, it went as far as people were saying that he moderated a message board dedicated to uh, hunting down and bashing black women, which they didn't even bother to say why he would do this, but. They were just printing this stuff up, and Lewis was like the only one who did all this work. But he did it for his own medium publication, not even for. Um, but what is in it for somebody to take the time and research that when they're in a rush to beat everyone else to the story, and also in a rush to move on to the next story so they can get paid for that one as well? Well, it's sort of it goes back to what we were talking about earlier because we speak about how like all these these like listicles and like these, these uh, like big articles that are basically just like gifts are like really easy for people to consume, but like long form media is dying and all that. The amount of people that <laughs> were sent my article, which uh, granted, I'll be honest, it was long, but the amount of people that were sent that and it was tagged in people on people's posts and they were like, I'm not reading that. That's too long. Like, I can't be bothered. Like, they would say stuff like, um, oh, Simon Louis is like a, a racist and like he, um, he, he hates women. And then, like, someone would like tag my article and they'd be like, nah, that says that's a 10 minute read. So I'm not going to read that. Like, like, they were saying he was a pedo sympathizer. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 They were saying, they were saying, every, they were saying everything. They were it was, trying it was to pretty like, funny. make anything stick. Uh, how is this for a final question? What's on the screen now? Uh, and then we'll end it here. How much of this is a function of not properly teaching humanities? Uh, could I field the question, actually? Even though oh, I'm just go a college? Sure. Go ahead. Man, yeah, go on. <laughs> um, that, well, before I do that, I just wanted to say, because um, you guys are covering final points, this BuzzFeedification idea that you're talking about, um, you know, BuzzFeed is an outlet that actually has done a lot of really good legitimate journalism, but they're also an outlet that's like really all over the place. Kind of like this episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't really been a solid topic from what I've listened to. <laughs> Don't have anyone else to talk to you about this shit, okay? It's been bottled up for too long. That's okay. Again, I used to host podcasts. I know how it goes. Um, but I actually was interviewed by Rachel Krishna of BuzzFeed over the whole comics gate. I know you guys mentioned that earlier. And uh, unfortunately, what I actually said to her and what was printed in the article were they couldn't be two different things. 
uh, which was very disappointing to me. But, you know, you can go, people can go and read that article. You just look up Comicsgate, BuzzFeed's the one that comes up, uh, BuzzFeed and a few others. But uh, that idea of BuzzFeedification, I think, like, that is a real problem that's going on. These outlets that don't really know exactly what they want to be, so they're trying to really just go in every direction. And, yeah, some people may view some of that as, like, they're going for the woke crowd or whatever, but they're also doing a lot of other things, too. Uh, the Daily Mailer and the Daily Caller are definitely guilty of that, too. Like, they're kind of in every direction. It's a real problem in journalism, uh, and it's a broader conversation than we have time for with these final points. But this – the function uh, of uh, not uh, something properly – Oh, sorry. Say, something, else, something, else with the, something else with the BuzzFeed thing. You're absolutely right that they used to do a lot of good reporting, but they gutted that whole section out because it was just not profitable enough and they couldn't justify it to their investors. So even the good stuff that they did do, that used to balance out the 15 gifts, it's all gutted and they doubled up on quizzes and whatever. So it's kind of, it's kind of tragic. I mean, you are right, but it's unfortunately gone. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but they got bought out by another company this past year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I forget what they were even called, but that did happen. Yeah. I forget what company it was. They were hoping that that's going to be a boon to things. Although I watched a video about College Humor earlier today and how they got bought out. And that was way early in their existence. That company was hoping for them to be more profitable. It unfortunately didn't happen. That company wound up pulling their funding. And College Humor now is apparently doing okay for the staff that they have. But they laid off like 100 people last year or a year before last, if I'm not mistaken. So BuzzFeed went went public in uh, 2021 um, through a a, a, a a SPAC, which is basically like a a public offering that doesn't require any kind of disclosure. Um, so so they, they weren't bought by anyone, but they are now publicly traded, which which itself has its own kind of weird uh, capital drivers on upon corporate behavior. So so yes uh, yes you are correct. Sort of in is the way that-, that Vince McMahon now has to answer to all of the other investors that are involved in the WWE as it is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> is it, is it called complex media or something? They're partnered with yeah, now. Bought, yeah. Complex. I believe so. Yeah. yeah it's like a lot of like hip hop related news and that kind of stuff. It's like, a, yeah, it's like, like the vice news of like uh, hip hop culture. But 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 they but they've also become like those other sites that uh, Dexter was describing, where they now they do kind of kind of everything. They're marginally hip hop now. They just yeah. kind of hop on anything they can. You know, I want to say something about the humanities point, and, and kind of um, say something about what you touched on in terms of boosterism. Cool. Um, talking about the uh, sort of the culture of echo chambers, the question of whether or not it's worse on the right than it is on the left, that sort of thing. Um, one is, uh, videos of mentally challenged people scoring touchdowns is something I'm thinking a lot about. Um, the other thing, I, I promise you it'll tie in. And the other thing I'm thinking about is, uh, uh, a lecture that a man from Pakistan who was in a writing residency gave about Rakim. And I tell the story sometimes for me, one of my most shocking and illuminating experiences, I worked for the international writing program briefly in Iowa city there was a man who used to dress up in Run DMC retro outfits from Pakistan who came from a lot of money, who'd written a book called Homeboy. H.M. Nagvi, I believe. And um, he wanted to teach a class on Rakim. 
not a single white person in that building had ever asked me about hip hop. I'm from Harlem. My cousin's cool Keith, kind of deep in the scene. No one ever wanted a conversation with me about it. They were in a rush to get this guy who was performing a sort of minstrelsy, like a distant version of hip hop to talk about Rakim. He taught a class comparing Rakim to Shakespeare. He went out to the dive bar afterward. So happened that I used to work there and I had taken over the jukebox, put CDs in, and we had an extensive playlist of Rakim. I played it all. He knew none of the songs, right? What a lot of people on the left are seeking is a sort of titillation of saying they experienced the thing without being provoked by it. I used to associate this with the right. And this is why I'm going to agree that, yes, the right is worse, but that I don't, I'm going to say I don't care about that because that feeds their purposes. On the left, it's worse that we've uh, adopted that sort of approach to things. The popularity of the mentally challenged person scoring a touchdown has skyrocketed in the last decade. It drives me crazy. It's never about the child who's being cheered on. It's easy to retweet. It's a way that we affirm our decency ever being challenged to form an opinion or a critical thought. Our art is becoming that, right? It's, it's really scary. When, when the left starts to turn into this sort of echo chamber that has purity tests, we get this artwork, these musicals. We get Amanda Gorman, who's the equivalent of a mentally challenged person scoring a touchdown as everyone oh waves God. their arms. Yes. Like Amanda Gorman, Rudy. Oh, Jesus Christ. Except he's writing in the New York Times pieces of self-advertisements of nothing but platitudes and caring. Now, real good art forces you to think. It leaves you with a complexity of afterthought. It challenges you. It doesn't affirm you. You might feel uncomfortable when you receive it, right? There's not as much room for that anymore. That scares me. If I can, Jason, I, I don't disagree necessarily with what you're saying, but the language with which you're presenting this and using buzzwords like echo chambers and platitudes and virtue signaling. I didn't say virtue signaling and platitudes. You did say the word virtue word. signaling. But uh, no, I mean, I think that kind of hurts your case a little bit. Like, it, Yes, I get what you're saying, but I, I don't know, man. It just... We should be celebrating those things, of course, but you're saying that we're celebrating those things not on the merit of their individual accomplishments, but because it is something that we can make political, basically. Yes, I am saying that we cheer for mentally challenged people's uh, scoring contrived touchdowns on football fields, not because of the experience that person has, but because it is the one thing that can make us signal other people that we're decent without us actually stating any complex or challengeable opinion. Can I it tell a funny moral courage. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but can I tell a funny story actually? I don't know how much time you guys have. <laughs> it's a Bobcat yeah, yeah, Goldthwait go story. If that makes it any better. Only if you do it in yeah, go ahead. voice. <laughs> uh, Bobcat Goldthwait was on a plane a few years ago and uh, it had engine trouble. And actually went into free fall. And I mean, you know, they righted themselves, but it was a moment of like, I think I'm going to die. Oh my God. And he tells the story in a standup. And he, when he tells the story, he says, this part, I'm going to lose some of you in the audience, but I'm asking you to please stay with me for a moment. He says, you know, 
we ride it ourselves. The captain comes on. He says, we're going to be making an emergency landing here in Georgia. On the runway, when we get there, there's going to be foam. And at the end, there's going to be a fire truck. The important part of this story is most of the Special Olympics team for the U.S. was on the plane with him. So when the captain says there's going to be a fire truck at the end, somebody behind Bobcat Goldthwait says, fire truck? And Bobcat Goldthwaite says, you know, I was thinking in this moment, like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Like, I'm, he's thinking about his family, his friends, his career, all of that. And he says, you know, I, I know when you think about people who are special needs, and everybody has somebody in their life that they know that is that, it's very easy to get offended when people make jokes about that. But the thing is, if you make – if you – get offended when people make jokes about those people. You're not looking at them as human beings. And this guy said, fire truck. And he was so excited to just see a fire truck. And to me, that was the funniest fucking thing a human being had ever said. And again, like if you don't think they do and say things that are funny, you're not looking at at them as human beings. And so that story has stuck with me because I have people like that in my life. And I'm a hairstylist by trade, by the way. So I interact with people of every walks of life, you know, kids with autism and kids who have Down syndrome and everything at all. And a fire truck just sticks in my head all the fucking time. And it's one of the funniest fucking things I've ever heard. I I feel like I feel like part of this, uh, I might be a little bit too. British to understand. You guys are talking about like uh, disabled kids scoring touchdowns. Over here, we just let our prime minister rugby tackle children. I don't know if you've seen any of the horror videos. Uh, the funny thing is, he's done it twice. I feel like somebody who does Boris Johnson's hair has to be special needs. I mean, that's my opinion. I, I feel the same about Donald Trump. Don't get me wrong, but and Joe Biden for that matter. I think his mother does it with a bowl. <laughs> um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Unless anybody has any final points. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought I'll this was about okay. writing. <laughs> Real quick, I don't know that teaching humanities better or, or different would, um, would have any particular uh, effect because I think that the driver is – the market driver, it's its where you can make money either as a company or as a writer is by doing certain things. So just, you know, I, I, I think that it's ultimately what is incentivized by where you can get money instead of how we teach things. So I think. Okay. I'm- oh, sorry. I took him out. Hold on. <laughs> Uh, can you come back? Can you come back to the queue? Because I was wrapping up, so I didn't know you were going to speak again. Uh, Dexter, you can feel free to come back to the queue. Okay, cool. I just realized this question: How much of this is a function of not properly teaching humanity? We've spoken about like fifty different things. I don't know exactly what he's referring to. Does he mean Buzzfeed, like the Buzzfeedification of things, or like we're yeah, yeah, about I Dave think Chappelle so. for a long time there? <laughs> no, I think I think this, I think this is a general whole trend of what we we're talking about of people. Not, I, I would say I would say probably um, a good example of what he's probably talking about is people not wanting to read your article because it said ten minutes um, to read up front. Mm. 
I don't know about teaching more humanities, but I think we should have uh, more mandatory uh, internet technology classes, at least in Britain. I don't know about you guys in the States, but yeah, no. You're talking to the wrong person. I'm almost 40. <laughs> hey, I'm almost 40. Uh, he says oh, he, he, he responded all of it, that movie reviews, uh, etc. Um Okay, well, you know what? It's late here on the East Coast, so I'm going to stop it now. But thanks, everybody, for joining us. Appreciate it, everybody who joined it. And do us a favor. This allow this app allows you to make clips. So by all means, make clips. Share clips of your favorite parts of this when you listen to it. I should have announced that up top because um, that would have been better. But uh, Q, do you have any... You're more versed with this app than I am. Is there anything people should know about making clips? I have yet to make a clip. Um, no, if you're, if you're listening to this and you thought that there were, like, funny moments or, like, uh, some, somebody said something really intelligent or should be highlighted, just uh, use the scissor tool, which creates highlights. Um, clip the audio and either, if you want to, like, tweet it or send it to us, that would be great because... The more that we're able to boost highlights of the show, the longer the show is going to stick around for. So, um, T, is it okay to let people know what's going on with you, or should we wait until that's all settled? Oh, no, no, it's it's fine. It's fine. I mean, as soon as you bring it up, then you might as well say it, because I hate teasing. Okay. So, so, yeah, no, so, um, I, so I, I, I'm the one that has a deal with Colin. Like, I've been very transparent about that, um, that uh, Colin signed me. Um, back in November, um, to produce content, and I introduced T to the Colin team, and uh, apparently he's very close to uh, putting together a deal as well uh, to do sponsored content. And because there's no monetization right now, what they have to know is that the shows are viable. So I started like the Colin, um, like the Champagne Sharks product, obviously belongs to T, but I created. Uh, the space and handed it over to him so that he would be able to essentially like create the rooms and invite people here and create what essentially would be a long-term viable product. So in order to show that it has support and that you want to see more, what we need to see is a couple of things is that one people come into the room and that two people are actually listening to the show. So if there's something funny or interesting that you found about this recording or any of the previous recordings, like share it with people and if there's moments that you really liked just clip it and share that with us so that we can um share it on social media as well yeah that's an important thing if you do make a clip by all means tag us and we will uh retweet it could tag at champagne sharks but also like put in other places too like instagram facebook you know i feel like twitter is like diminishing returns at this point because i feel like um the, the Everybody's going to follow me. Follow. Like, no, well, it's, it's not just that. It's also like the, the, the way the Twitter algorithm works is that there's like entire swaths of people. Like there's whole demographics that will never see you. Um, so we're trying to like push it also on like Instagram, Facebook, etc. But the best thing to do really is like make a clip and then tag us in it so that we can share the moments that you find funny. And also if there are people that you want to see on the show, um, we were even like – some of the YouTube creators that we talked about tonight, even some of the reactionary ones, we were going to invite them on and have a conversation to, like, you know, uh, go back and forth on 
media criticism, et cetera. So if there are people that you would like to see, um, feel free to like hit us up, shoot us a DM, uh, and let us know who you'd like to have come on the show as well. If, uh, yeah, if you guys get the coring on. What's that? What was that? Is it a quartering? Yeah, if you guys get him on, get me back. Send, send me a message. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a bridge, that's that's a bridge too far. That's, that's, that's a bridge too far. I think I think the furthest I would go is like you were uh, okay, but you were suggesting Ethan Van Cyber, right? What, what's I just want to say that my beard is better than Jeremy Hambley's. First off, <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's I feel like it's a low bar though. Yeah, it, it, it is a low bar. I'll give you that. <laughs> okay, everybody. Uh, thanks. And yeah, share the clips. Tag us at Champagne Sharks and tell your friends. Get more people because yeah, basically we have to show them that this is a viable space uh, over the next couple of months. So yeah, the more people that get in here, the more people that share this because they'll be looking at the social media um, activity as well. It really helps us out. So we definitely appreciate that. And we'll be doing more of these uh, per week, but shorter. Like, we only do one, so we let it go long. But uh, we'll be doing more of them shorter than instead of one long one like this. And thanks to everyone who joined us. You guys have been very patient. You could have been anywhere, but you were here. We appreciate it. And be good, everybody. Thank you.